You sound good. All right, guys, we're about to go live. Preparing to go live. Just setting up your YouTube live meeting. Usually this stuff actually gets recorded, so I think we're actually probably live right now. So I'm going to go ahead and introduce. I think we're actually getting started as I speak. Yep, I see the YouTube coming up. I'm going to mute that. All right, welcome everyone back to Growing With My Fellow Growers. This is a Cheap Home Grow production. Thank you to Shane from the Cheap Home Grow for giving us this platform to do the podcast. And I'm going to go ahead and take this time to click over to the live chat so I can see everyone. Hello, Kate Armstrong. And uh, I'll go ahead and start off by introducing the panel with starting with Matthew Gates. Yeah, hey everyone. This is Matthew Gates, Integrated Pest Management Specialist. Um, if you're interested in that kind of a thing, I make a lot of content regarding pests and pathogens and plant health on my YouTube channel, Xenthanol. It's the same channel that I am commenting in, which by the way, you should have the live chat, not the top chat, so you can get everyone's comments. Uh, we're always getting a lot of regulars, and I really appreciate the interactions in the comment section. You can also find my information on uh, Instagram at SyncAngel. Thank you very much for joining us, and I wanted to give it over next to Dr. MJ. Hey, everyone. It is uh, Dr. MJ Coco from CocoForCannabis.com. Um, yeah, it's an interesting time. I'm about to do some light testing. I'm excited about that. We are getting all geared up for the next Grow Challenge. We got a whole challenge committee now, so we're going to have a really cool challenge starting in August, if you guys are interested in growing together. Um, and I have my whole little photo, no auto situation that hopefully we'll talk about today. But I'm looking forward to the show. Thanks for having us on at Shane and Jack. Well, thank you for joining us once again. And next up, we got Spartan Grown. Hello, everybody. I'm Spartan Grown. You can find me on Instagram at Spartan Grown. I'm a rec grower here in Michigan. Or you can find my work, Commercial Grow, at uh, Mitten Canico on Instagram. Or you can find me all over YouTube. <laughs> Definitely, definitely. I've uh, watched many, many shows that you've been on the cannabis YouTube space. So check Spartan out at all the places. Next up, we got Aaron, the grower. You're still on mute there, Aaron. Sorry. Maybe you're muted in your Zoom, um, but I still can't hear you. Yeah, he's still muted in Zoom. It shows the icon. He's muted. Okay. The, the windows were on top of each other. Exactly. I was like, I couldn't click on. Anyways, um, I'm Aaron, the grower. Uh, I literally just grow. Uh, so I'm kind of, uh, I just know a, a little bit about a lot of things. So if you want to find me, I'm at ATG Acres on Instagram. And uh, yeah, I, I do off-grid stuff. Sounds good, man. A little bit goes a long way sometimes. And off-grid is a really cool way to go about it, especially many people in the cannabis space had to do that for a long time. So shout out to you and thanks for coming back to the panel. Next up, I'll introduce uh, Tao, the American one. How you doing? Hey, Jack. Hey, panel. Hey, chat. Uh, it's great to be here. Uh, shout out to Shane for uh, giving us the opportunity and platform. And um, I'm the American one. You can find me on YouTube and IG. Uh, nothing special. And I'm glad to be here. You're very modest, Tao, because uh, you got some special genetics that you've handed out to the community. I've seen a few people growing that Amy's Aces and some of the other stuff that you've bred as well. And uh, it's all looked really fire. So uh, shout out to the humble gardener, the American one there. And uh, next up, we've got Noah the Groa. 
How's it going, everybody? I'm Noah Legroa with two E's from Instagram. Uh, if you want to find anything I'm doing, you're more than welcome to come over and check anything I'm doing or ask me any questions. I'm always happy to help and uh, happy to be here. We're happy to have you. And it sounds like you've got a little bit of a budding interest in autoflowers as well, uh, according to our chat. So maybe you and Dr. MJ will be able to have a little bit to talk about here this week. Lastly, but definitely not least, we've got Kyle, Predicative Breeding. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Hey, Jack, for having me. Glad everybody's here. Um, I'm a cannabis breeder. I mainly do with genetics that don't have hermaphrodite issues. Um, if you're looking for any of my work, you can find me at Predicated Breeding on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. I do want to say it's and uh, I'm really excited to see what we have to talk tonight, Jack. Thanks for hosting. Welcome back, Kyle. Your connection is a little bit fuzzy there. And for anyone who couldn't hear it, it is P or predicativebreeding.com or pbreeding.com to find his genetics. Uh, always glad to have a breeder on the panel like yourself, Kyle. And I think uh, as I sort of teased a little bit in the introductions, we talked a little bit about autoflowers and uh, Noah had a question about autoflowers in our chat, but Dr. MJ had a little story maybe he had mentioned that we could kick it off with that might be a good reference point to uh, start talking about just growing in general, but maybe a little yeah. auto talk this week. Well, my story is really about the plant that isn't an auto. Um, so I had, I mean, I don't know where to start this story, but it, it's occurred to me strongly within the last week that the plant in the back of my garden is not flowering like the other ones are. Um, it was a little bit stunted earlier in veg, and I kind of I kind of was assuming it was just sort of taking its time. Maybe that set it back, even though that really shouldn't extend the, the sort of time it takes to flowering. Um, but it was kind of shorter than the other plants and I put it in the back. I wasn't really that concerned about it, but now it's the tallest plant and it's very clearly not flowering. Um, the others are already, you know, several weeks into flower at this point. Um, so I just have the uncomfortable situation of having a plant now that I, I really can't manage. Um, if I, I mean, one option would be to go to 12-12 lighting now, which would put that plant into stretch, which there's, there's no room for that. Um, and that would sort of adversely affect the, the autoflowers in, in a couple of different ways. They'd have a plant growing over the top of them and they'd only be on 12 hours of light. Um, the other option would be to just keep vegging it until the autos are done. Um, but it will be an absolutely monster plant if I do that. And then I would have to flower it on its own in like July and August when it's 110 degrees here. Um, so my one of my sort of schedule issues is I try not to grow in July. Um, and so we're kind of running out of of options for what I do with this. It's a very nice, healthy looking plant. It's vigorous growth now. It's pretty gigantic. Um, and I'm sort of faced with the, the decision of having to like hack it up into pieces in the tent and take it out piece by piece just because it's in the back of the tent. So I'm interested in suggestions or ideas or, uh, you know, commiseration. <laughs> yeah. Well, how much time do you expect that you're going to need to flower out in there with your autos? I think the others have maybe five weeks left. Yeah. I would just fucking cut it up into clones 
<laughs> See, but, but I don't even want to keep the clones. I mean, that that's the sad part. Like, I mean, I don't want to have clones in July and August. I'm not, I don't want to have plants in July and August. I want to be able to sort of have a month off. Um, it what gets you- really hot here and I want to be able to like go camping and do other things. Oh. And, yeah, not have to sort of to the garden, you know what I mean? So... And you could always do what I did with the uh, the Highland tie. I don't know how much room you have in your tent, but uh, you know it's when I the thing uh, quadrupled in the stretch, and I had to lay the pot on its side. Well, somebody's question would be, well, how do you water on the side? So I took a hole saw and drilled a hole in the side of the pot, and I watered like that for like three months to finish it. That's cool. That's it works. Funny, yeah. Um, yeah. No, I mean, I could physically keep that one plant to be, you know, in the in the tent but the issue is right now my auto flowers are are flowering and they're they're occupying a great deal of the tent um so anything that keeps this other plant the, this other plant is growing really well now and it's like locked in veg on a 20-hour light cycle um it's just it's, yeah so your only, your only other option would be to drop to a 12-hour light cycle and then all your autos are going to suffer from yield the autos are going to suffer and that one plant's going to stretch then which would just grow really sort of quickly for the next three weeks or whatever um and i don't think that i can manage i mean i don't uh, yeah and then after you know i'd have to have it keep going for another nine weeks uh bad idea you could uh you could do like an internal depth inside your room and just build like a little tiny uh hoop tunnel and just literally depth one plant i know people have done that so i would donate it to a friend or something like that just yeah. take a plant and give it to someone who can finish it maybe outdoors yeah. or in a larger space yeah uh, even that's going to be kind of tough getting it physically out of the tent at this point without disturbing the other two plants is going to be really hard to do in one in one piece with the container um you know uh, the easy, get another tent the easiest thing to do for the auto grow would just be to to chop it up into pieces turn off the drip line into that container leave the container there and you know kill the plant and take the plant out in pieces if i want to save the plant i'm probably gonna to have to move all the plants out of the tent um which I mean, I'm growing, I have a four by four tent and there's three plants in it and the tent's full. So all three of these plants are like large. I had a, a random thought, I guess, is uh, you're running a 20 on four off cycle. Yep. And maybe if you dropped to like an 18.6 or a 17.7, if that could potentially trigger flowering in that one, that's like. Uh, well, it shouldn't. Yeah, I, I get your point. I mean, it it, it really, if, if there are auto flowers, it shouldn't matter what the, the day length duration is. Um, I don't think that it's a, a degree thing like that. Although there certainly are some strains that will flower with only like 10 hours of darkness. Um, I, I think I'd probably have to go. See, but the problem there is that if this plant gets put into flower and stretches, it's just going to shade. It's going to be really hard for me not to have it shading out the other two, the other two plants. And Plus, I don't really know what it is. I mean, so I'm it surprised like, that it's obviously not what it said it was, right? So, I so it no sounds idea. Like to me, it's the best situation would be to just, like you said, cut it up in pieces. But you can take it and you can make make those pieces into clones and gift them out if you. I could gift out the clones. Yeah, that's yeah. true. That's but, I mean, it, so if that's an option. It. But but cut off a whole bunch of like mystery clones. <laughs> I don't know what they are. Oh, that's true. Yeah, be, you probably couldn't sell them, but uh, you could oh. get them away. Right? <laughs>
better than bag seed maybe for a first time gardener. I'll say that at least. And uh, yeah, it's it's definitely some, this was a packaging mix up. So I don't know. You guys have definitely heard me talk about the original challenge where we had um, just seven of us and, and six of us grew a plant that hermed. And then we were supposed to grow another plant, which was gorilla cookies and on Chef OMJ and I, and I think one other grower, those plants turned into, into autos. Well, these are seeds that came with that order. And these were supposed to be autos, but these apparently are photos. And those other seeds that I grew that were supposed to be photos turned out to be autos. So part of me is thinking that this was just mislabeling. And maybe these are the gorilla cookies that I was supposed to grow in that original challenge. Um, but another part of me thinks that, you know, this was a foobar situation and I shouldn't draw too many sort of conclusions from that. I think that something happened with that order. I think I might've gotten somebody else's order or something. I don't know. I think if it's not a total like foobar fucked up beyond all recognition for anybody Mm -hmm. who is curious what that means. Um, I think if it's not that case, I want to throw it over to Kyle because he talked a little bit about his pineapple express autoflower that he selfed. And in the selfing process, he was looking for more autos, but what he ended up with was a super stinky pineapple fino of a photo period. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if maybe that breeder didn't do their homework or the testing to see, like, maybe they selfed it expecting more autos and then just sold the seed and then didn't realize, okay, well, that was actually close enough to a photo period plant that selfing it made it revert back to a photo period plant. Um, yeah, well, I think that there's, I'm not particularly surprised that selfing an auto would produce a photo. It, it seems that at least part of um, the auto flowering gene is recessive. I could see that for sure, too. I, I would just like when I look at like Mandalorian genetics, who's got like F5. Well, actually, and, it would have like to that. be. Yeah, I'd have I think to think more. Might. It wouldn't just be recessive trait. Um, but yeah, it, it wouldn't, it, they could be heterozygotic for that trait. So their offspring, um, their offspring are not going to be identical genetically to the parent plant, even when you self a plant. I think that that's a big misconception in breeding um, is that selfing produces genetically identical offspring. Um, to the extent that the parent is heterozygotic, so if you have, if you have an XY, like that, you're gonna give the X to some of your offspring and the Y to some of your offspring. If you're crossing an XY with an XY, some are gonna be XX, some are gonna be XY, some are gonna be YYs. Um, and that's just with one parent. So y- there's the way that that, that auto flowering trait um, exists genetically, it could certainly, it doesn't mean it's gonna be preserved throughout the generations. Matthew, did you have any thoughts on this? Because I know you've done a decent amount of research on photoperiod sensitivity and what may uh, induce that in certain cultivars. A little bit. Um, I feel like a broken record because I talk about it so much. So basic, <laughs> basically, I know that I know that in that in that research report that I referenced in the global inter- integrated pest management video I made. Um, a bunch of Chinese researchers were able to find, they, they found that by sampling um, uh, wild populations of cannabis plants across, along like the sort of Eastern Chinese coast, mostly, um, they saw that there was like a latitudinal sort of pattern where like, mm-hmm. where the, um, the plants would go from being photo, 
or well <laughs> technically scoto period so it's the darkness period not the light getting right. right but um where that would uh it would change as the latitude goes up and so the ones that were below like 40 degrees uh north latitude i think were and i want to i want to be able to give the information correctly so why don't i just load up 40 the, degrees yeah, okay that's pretty taut high yeah let me just make sure that i have that right Our north i should say well because yeah because all this is in the northern hemisphere right so right. I, that's what i mean to convey when i say that and they were all in china it was like f above 40 uh north latitude and then like between 30 and, and 40 and then the more southern ones there was like just different groups where they found somewhere to go to period yeah that makes total sense right photo periodism is a, is an evolutionary adaptation um for seasonality so in different latitudes you're gonna have different sort of seasonal indicators and different day lengths yes so. and and i you know jack you did remind me that it was actually everything that was in the southern half below group was also the mo more more ancient or basal so it seemed like everything below the 30 degree was um i think those ones were scoto period um sensitive and then uh -huh. the other two were the ones uh, at the 40 degree mark and above were insensitive, if I remember correctly. I think that that sounds correct to me. But yeah, so I mean, that's kind of interesting to consider. And like, and like, like what you're saying, Dr. MJ, like the, that's an adaptation to seasonality and also uh, sort of, obviously those populations might still intermingle sort of naturally right um, so it's interesting to consider that as well but um like with other plants a lot of people you know just for just for other people's edification a lot of plants ha do this where like you'll get into the sort of ring species situation where like um you know two populations that are right next to each other can interbreed but uh they can't interbreed with other populations that are practically the same but are geographically uh, more spread out. And sometimes all it takes is like a difference in when you flower or something like this. So like if you were to artificially like take the pollen from one plant, like maybe the flowers only open at night or something, just to give an example, um, you could make that plant maybe uh, fertilize a pl uh, another, another uh, this, uh, how do I, <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, stumbling over my own words. Basically, you could make the plant fertilize another plant, the same species essentially, but because those flowers don't uh, normally open at the same time, they're, um, what's the phrase? What, what do we call they're it? They're isolated. They're isolated. Yeah, that's a form of isolation. So yeah. we often think of speciation, of the isolation required to generate speciation as being geographic. Um, but like you're talking about, Matt, it can be breeding window, um, whether that's day period or seasonality, again, for when they sort of are, are sensitive to receive pollen or to have sex if they're animals. Um, right. there are Reproductive isolation, right? That's what they call it. What's that? Reproductive isolation. Reproductive isolation. That's yeah. correct. And to uh, give a shout out to a late join, but someone who has uh, some great information on this topic specifically, and instead of letting nature do the breeding, he has done some of the breeding himself with photoperiods and autoflowers, 
Brandon Rust, I was curious if you have uh, some thoughts. We were talking a little bit about auto flowers and Dr. MJ shared that he had a auto that didn't begin auto flowering on him where the other two in his tent did. And he was sort of discussing uh, what might have to go on with that. And I was curious, sort of your thoughts on autos and how many generations it's taken your project to show autos and how stable uh, and the rate of auto flowers are. So go ahead, Brandon, sorry uh, for the long introduction. Um, yeah, so I don't have any uh, auto flowers. Um, all the stuff that I have, I have the, the Russians, the pure Russians, who incidentally enough, I was just speaking to Greg or Guardian of the Lost Terps on Instagram right before I joined here. That's why I was late. Um, we were discussing some projects about possibly uh, getting the project that I'm working on, which is a Gorilla Glue uh, with a higher CBD content. What I used was I used his Siberian Ruderalis, which is an auto flowering variety because of the uh, cannabinoid profile, which is a high CBD. Um, and I wanted to kind of incorporate that into the, the Gorilla Glue variety. And the uh, F1 generation didn't show uh, any of the characteristics from the Gorilla Glue. Um, all the males were autoflower in that, and in, in both the F1 and the F2 generations of that cross. Um, however, the autoflowering allele um, has only expressed itself maybe once out of, I think, the uh, F2 generation out of maybe, I don't know, 100 seeds that I popped. Um, so uh, it doesn't. I haven't been breeding into the necessarily into the autoflowering trait. Um, I was just trying, I'm just trying to um, come up with something similar to Gorilla Glue with a higher CBD. So my question, I guess, then would be if uh, that was your goal, why would you not reach for something like a Harley Sue or a ACDC, something that's really high CBD variety, that's a photo period, that would be a lot easier to have a consistent cut of versus the Russian Ruderalis that uh, is going to be just a little bit more difficult to breed with, in my opinion. Um, I think I did it because I didn't really set the goal before I started playing around with it. And I uh, was like, hey, I really like this. And, you know, once I started playing with it, then I set my goals like, you know what, let's see if I can. Because uh... the first the, th the first thing I wanted to do was I wanted to be able to experience the the variety itself right like something completely different from a different part of the world but i had a really difficult time popping the seeds um, and then i had an even more difficult time keeping them alive in a conventional soil like the one that i use which is modified growing mix or living soil um they would just die when i watered them like they didn't want water they didn't want nutrients i think they just wanted dirt you know dirt and maybe a little bit of moisture every once in a while um i'd agree so I, I think ruderalis they sort of evolved in, in that area in russia wherever he was at it probably didn't have a ton of rich soil and they were just forced to survive off basically nothing like very little water and very little nutrients so when they got in that like ideal uh, climate that you had for most of your plants that love it that thing that was used to basically thriving on nothing was like holy shit I, i'm not used to this buffet it's like if you try to give a starving african kid a bunch of food it fucks up their stomach that's why they give them like these little protein pastes and, and like peanut butter and stuff like that versus an actual large meal when they first start eating again. 
Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what I was thinking too. You know, these things weren't acclimated to what I was doing and they just really wanted to be left alone. So what I did is I took, I took one of the males um, that I liked and I crossed that into the Gorilla Glue four cut and all the seeds were super, all viable. I didn't have any problem popping the seeds, all the plants, you know, were acclimated. I could grow them in the, in, in the soil that I use. So once I had that down, um, I started growing some out and I got some, I didn't get any. Brandon, you muted yourself, I think. And, uh, and I had some nice bud structure that, that finished really, really fast in about seven weeks but it wasn't what I was looking for. So what I ended up doing is I took a male from that F1 generation um, and then I hit it back into the uh, Gorilla Glue and then I also crossed it back into itself, uh, its sister to make a F2 generation. Um, and the F2 generation is just all over the board uh, for, the Russian, for the Russian with the Gorilla Glue Genex in it. And then the, uh, the F1 crossed back into the Gorilla Glue um, is really fast growing, just like the Russian. It it uh, flowers real fast, but it has more of the Gorilla Glue structure uh, and terpene profile. So I have a couple of them. Hope I'm going to get them tested, see what the cannabinoid profile looks like, and if it um, if it's what I'm kind of going towards, or if it's close, or if it's you know at least a step in the right direction. I'll you know keep doing what I need to get it there. Um, awesome. That It sounds like you've definitely got more direction in the project now that you've st started to play around with some of the genetics and uh, you're going to take things some new directions. And I wanted to maybe throw it over to Spartan Grown because I know you grow both autoflowers and photoperiod. And I was curious, um, are you getting any more like unique terpene profiles off of some of the autoflowers that you're growing? Or is it, uh, I know that you mentioned in the past, you like to grow them in your mother room or your veg tent. So I was curious what your sort of thoughts on Otto's flavor and uh, potency and things like that, just in general, if you have thoughts about them. Yeah, so I can only speak, I've got limited experience with Otto's. I'm still, um, the Otto's that I'm using, um, shout out to Morningstar Seed Company. Those are the Otto's that I'm growing right now. And um, they grow regulars. They, I mean, they, they make regular seeds. And his theory behind that is, is that way, if you wanted to do your own breeding, you could. Um, so for me, I've got to usually grow for some reason. Uh, I don't know if it's just his line or everybody's line is this way, but he, you tend to get a little bit higher average on the males for some reason. But so I usually have to go through two to three seeds to get a female, but to answer your question on flavors, because the reason I said all that was because they are similar lines. I've grown three different strains a couple twice, but, um, they're similar genetics. So as far as the, the breadth of, of flavors, they're all pretty similar, but it's because of the genetics that I'm growing. If I, you know, if I got a hold of uh, 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 full duplex on Instagram, I'm sure he'd hook me up. I could get some of his anvil or something and it would be completely different. But the stuff that I've grown is a, is a grapefruit terp and it's a purple micro dot. It was, it's a, like a lavender purple. It's not the dark, dark black purple. It's like the light lavender purple, but it was purple from the very first brack that formed on, uh, you know, a stalk. And it's the first time I've ever seen a plant be purple from the get-go of flower like that. And then, um, 
also then I grew uh, one called Baby Huey. The Baby Huey, I don't even remember what the Terps were like on that. But what impressed me on the Baby Huey were two things. It was a short, small plant. So it might have only gotten a foot and a half to two feet tall. But I had good size, like a size buds from the top to the bottom of the plant. Like literally the last bud I cut off that plant grew probably less than an inch from the surface of the soil. And it was probably, you know, that tall, a good size bud. So that really impressed me. And the potency was the other thing. It was a really potent bud. Um, I usually don't get that kind of potency. I did, wasn't expecting that kind of potency because I didn't get that kind of potency out of the first auto I grew. The thing where it was lacking was it didn't have the stain power. So it was potent up front, but it didn't last very long, in my opinion. So um, that's what I would say the negative was on that. Um, what was the other question you asked me? Did I cover everything? I think you did. I, I probably actually already forgot at this point, but I just wanted to comment <laughs> on uh, what you had said there. And uh, th say that I agree that autoflowers can have some really amazing yields top to bottom, bottom where there isn't bee bud on there. Like if you got enough light down or, or whatever it is, they just produce like some of them, it's like that water bottle top cola and then just a bunch of like baseball or popcorn or golf ball, whatever type nugs, depending on the size of the pot and how healthy the plant was and everything. But when you look top to bottom and they're all like the same size, that's a pretty ideal uh, thing about the plant. When I was looking at autos for the first time before I even knew what they were, I was like, holy shit, how are people getting this structure on their plants? Because they look like superhuman. Like they're so big. And granted, it, it shrinks up a little bit after you chop. But when you're looking at an auto, you're like, damn, like I see why people grow these things. Or like if well, it's not every auto. That's specific. I mean, you see, you see that more often in autos because a lot of people are afraid to train autos. So you're going to get that one big terminal cola yeah. a lot of the times because people will say that you can't even top them. But it's not that you can't top autos, but your veg is, for one, auto growing autoflowers. If you've never grown outdoor before, I can see, and you've only grown indoor, I can see where autoflowers would be kind of a learning curve for you. Because to me, growing an autoflower is like how I grow outdoor. You have to know the plant by looking at it when it flips the flower. There's no, you don't go outside and turn the sun off to 12-12. You know what I mean? You got to know that you look for the changes. And um, if you got that Actually, eye for I do, I do go outside and turn the sun off. Like <laughs> well, that. I don't have, I, I'm, you're not outside if you're in a greenhouse, man. No, no. I just, I just, I just turn the plant, the, the sun off for my plants. Everything. <laughs> yeah. Like well, that. I don't have that power. <laughs> Well, yeah, I've been actually said, Aaron, thinking about. Considered... Uh, Go ahead, Noah. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I've actually been thinking about uh, trying an autoflower outside. I've never grown an autoflower. I have grown outside, but I've been thinking about trying an autoflower outside. And I, I have banded around a little bit today in chat. And I am curious about some of this, you know, because I, I just want to learn. You know, I'm just curious and I want to find some good uh, autoflower seeds. A buddy said that he might be able to hook me up actually on instagram but yeah i'm interested in, in checking it out outside because i think it's kind of appealing i think that outdoor auto growers have a lot sort of to say for them because you can control when the harvest period is going to be it doesn't all have to be sort of you know at the same week in the fall um you can plant a spring crop and harvest it in the summer and then plant another crop depending on the length of your summer and harvest it again so you could have a couple of harvests a year as well in an outdoor grow um, so that's what we're playing around with. That, that's for sure. I'll start There's so I'll many start. things outdoor that you can, you can stick that there for me. It's like a, it's like having that extra tool in your utility belt that 
instead of having six tools, you have this one that fits six different situations. You know what I mean? It's really good. If, if I had a yard, I would probably try to take this photo and take it outside and plant it in the yard. Um, yeah, I would say opposite. I would take your autos and throw them outside and keep the photo inside and just blow up the whole tent. But you know, uh, yeah, or maybe yeah. you could stick them on a. On a do you have a belt? Autos are the better plant. I mean, I don't know. I was really gearing towards the auto. I think if I got the photo period plant out of there, I could probably pull close to ten ounces off of each of the autos. Um, and you don't think the sun can do that? Well, I don't have a yard, dude. Oh, <laughs> you don't have a balcony or, or porch or anything? I have a deck, but it's pretty public. <laughs> I mean, I can't stick. I mean, and it's like publicly accessible. California oh, is, is a lot different than Michigan. I'll say that our foot traffic uh, no. here is, is much, much higher in most places. And uh, yeah. Right. I live I'm not in. I'm not kidding. On my way. I'm not so, even kidding. On my way home from work, I used to drive past this house every single day. Yeah. Last, last summer. They had four autos sitting on their win or outside of their upstairs window was like a little walkout. Yeah. They had them right outside. You could see them plain as day from the road. Yep. All four fucking auto plants. I'm like, these guys have bigger balls than me, man. I, I well, we've grown plants in our windowsill. We have a south-facing uh, sliding glass door, um, and we get pretty good sunlight through that. It wasn't that my, my wife has really managed those plants and she's harvested some pretty good harvest off of her little windowsill plants. But no, I mean, if I'm interested in sort of uh, protecting my harvest, I definitely think that the, the option is get the photo period plant out of there and invest in the two autos. Both autos are doing really well. They're big manifolded plants um, and they're going to produce a lot. I wanted to throw this out there because I hear a lot of people like talking about autos in a negative light. And I'll just say the California uh, recreational market um, is judged with a pretty scrutinous eye by a lot of people, or at least myself. I'm pretty critical of it and think that the quality is often not very good. But when I went into a dispensary uh, the past several times I've gone uh, this year, the one thing I would say is you never, ever, ever see auto flower written on the label. And I know for a fact, many, many, many farms, especially in Northern California, yeah. have started growing autoflowers. So they're being sold without being told to you that it's an autoflower. And most people aren't complaining or, or even noticing at all. So well, do you think that's that deceptive? I mean, I don't, I don't see a necessary reason why they would have to disclose that. It, it makes more I sense to disclose the, the terpene profile and the cannabinoid percentages and stuff like that than the fact that the plant was an auto versus a photo. See, I just think you should write the strain name, and if it's like blue cheese auto, then like you're selling it as blue cheese. Like I think that there is a slight difference because there's ruderalis in that. Well, DNA. that's marketing. I mean, people have a negative impression about autos. Yeah, no, I agree, and I think that that's why it's not being labeled yep. that way. But I also I think, think that you're looking more into it because I don't think you don't see. I mean, at the same time, I would argue that you don't see blue cheese photo. You know what I mean? They're just they're just right. giving name. Right, so we assume it's that assumed, plants, because that's like been the history of it. The auto is more of the novelty, but I'm not, I don't know. I, I don't know if it feels, because I feel like you can get similar quality with autos and with photos. Um, I, I wouldn't feel like they were being deceptive as long as I was able to sort of see the quality of the bud that I was purchasing. Yeah, and the tests speak for themselves. I mean, if it's 22% THC and 8% terpenes or 5% terpenes or whatever it is, it's just that. It doesn't matter if it came from a photo period or an autoflower.
So let me ask you this. What's the, uh, I'll ask everybody this. What's the reasoning? How did, how did autos get so strong? Because they, you know, let's see, where are we? 2020, I would say 40 years ago that it was called, and I'm, I'm not that old, but I have old friends. And um, 40 years ago, it was called Siberian Bitchweed. And, you know, I think that it's come a long way. So what, it has it been bred, has it been hybridized, you know, yep. by situation? Yes. I think the yeah, biggest is too. So is it safe to say to that? It's just the life cycle. They're so short. What's that? It's just the life cycle. You can get so many more breeding cycles in in a year with autos than you could a photo period. You, it's so much slower process with a photo period. Right. So further down the, the, the allele lines or the like F1, F2, F3, F4, F5. To get further down those lines you, with an auto, you can get there quick. I mean, you can get down to an F12. You might be so there doesn't seem to be right any concordance between the autoflowering complex and like those genes or those traits that are responsible for cannabinoid and terpene production and other aspects. So they've been able to, by selective breeding, um, move autoflowering traits and combine them with those cannabinoid and terpene profiles that that are sort of have their origins in photoperiod plants. Um, and, and that just takes time. And, and it's been about the amount of time that you would expect now for the, the breeding to be paying off and for those traits to be combined in, in different ways. So there's really no reason, there doesn't seem to be a genetic reason why um, plants would be superior or be able to produce more cannabinoids or anything like that it, based on whether they're autos or photos. Sure. I think it's just that's that's people's misconception is that maybe misconception, you know, I think there's a huge lack of research. No, you know, everybody knows that. But um, people's misconception that uh, that autos are still what they once were, which was like, you know, 10, 11, 12 percent. Some are some suck. I mean, sure. and so fuck I think low rider. Fuck it. I'll say it right now. Fuck low rider. It's terrible. It's garbage. Don't buy those seeds. They're fucking shit. It's a decade old cultivar. Unless you're a breeder. Even if you're a breeder, don't buy it. Buy Mephisto's genetics. They put in a decade worth of work to change autoflowers from the shitty trash garbage that Lowrider was, a six-inch tall flowering plant that produced basically no cannabinoids, no terpenes. It was garbage. They bred that into something. That's what's important about it. But it it had an important feature for sure. And they took that important feature and they bred it into these beautiful hybrids that you and I all have access to if you want to go and purchase them. Uh, Mandalorian Genetics also has some beautiful, like his elf uh, that was mentioned earlier is an F5, extremely stable. And uh, it was bred using stuff like, um, God, what was it that turned it so black? Uh, does anybody remember what he used to breed that? It was um, a Tom Hill creation. It was one of those like deep chunk. Grape strains. Uh, like grape deep, is usually Deep made. chunk, like F12 or something is what he uses, one of the photo period bases. And then, like Spartan said, you can go through a lot more filial generations with autoflowers in a, a year than you could a photo period, maybe like one or two extra generations per year. And over in Spain, the original creators, the two guys from Mephisto's Genetics, they just took it from basically unsmokable to highly desirable. And they were competing against themselves. Like the one guy was a photo period guy, the other guy was an autoflower guy. He's like, hey, I always out yield you. But the, the photo period guy's like, hey, I've always got better quality. So they work together to try and make those available to the public in autoflower versions. And uh, the only I'm in a few other breeders in Spain have done a really good job. I want to shout out Humboldt Seeds as well because their autoflowers are unbelievable. Like I've had their OG Kush auto and it smokes up there with regular OG Kush. And I'm an OG Kush snob. Same with Bubba. 
Did it stretch really bad too, like an OG Kush? Did it act the same way? A little bit. Um, I didn't grow it. My buddy did, but um, it definitely stretched more than some autos. It wasn't like a six inch to ten inch tall plant. It was like a chest high, head high. See that that six inch to ten inch thing. I really think that that's a legacy. Uh, the reputation's a legacy of lowrider. Um, but I also think that that's a, a sort of artifact of a lot of bad advice about how to grow auto flowers. Um, I, I see all the time people saying to put auto to start auto flowers in in final containers, and that's a, a, an excellent way to end up with a really short small plant. Um, so I think that doing some of, of those things, and I think the yield thing, uh, I think Spartan already brought this up, was because a lot of people are afraid to, to um, top their autos or to really do other forms of high-stress training. Um, and I think that that ends up hurting their yield. So th th there's sort of an odd combination of, of history and mythology that, that contributes to the, the lingering negative reputation that autos have amongst some. For, in my experience, autos are the largest plants that I grow um, and the heaviest yielding plants that I grow. And the, the quality is comparable to the photo period plants. Um, my favorite strains are still photo period strains, but um, I can tell that the auto flowers are sort of comparable in quality. That's just sort of a personal preference issue and lack of experience. I wanted to throw out as far as potency. I mean, people always claim there wasn't high THC, but Forgotten Cookies by Mephisto's Genetics has tested over 25% by three or four different growers, third party. Uh, Chef Anna with the Pot has some testing on that. And I know that there's a few other autos that have tested 25% and up. And I know that's not the highest test ever, but before they were having a really hard time even hitting up to that 20% mark. And I also wanted to take some time to uh, give a shout out and welcome to Hota Herb. So Hota, we're talking a little bit about autos, and I don't know if you've grown autos before, but maybe go ahead and introduce yourself and talk a little bit about what you think about them, uh, both in the past and more modernly. Awesome. Thanks for having me. As always, it's great to be here, guys. I'm Hota Herb, J-O-T-A-H-E-R-B, at Hota Herb on Instagram. Uh, yeah, I've grown some autos. I love autos. I grew uh, actually two of the, one of my favorite plants to smoke and one of the largest plants I ever grew as an auto is a sour livers by Mephisto and it was absolutely amazing um, but yeah I grew a alien B triangle f2 and sour livers from Mephisto and it was a blast I had a lot of fun with it I grew it in straight cocoa um, used uh, heavy 16 nutrients on it and um, it was a lot of fun I think everybody should actually really try autos um, because it really blows your mind, I think, especially if you've been growing for a long time, to see the plant in flower and veg for most of its life. And like three weeks, you look down and that thing starts to flower on you and you're like, what is going on here? Um, so, yeah, they're really, really interesting. I think everybody should try them. Absolutely. Aaron, the grower, I know that you're a light depth guy. Have you ever considered maybe off grid just throwing down a few autos outside of the depth and uh, growing them alongside the photo? Not until this exact moment, I haven't. Oh, yeah, that's what this We're is getting a convert. <laughs> I know a lot of people up where you're at that have tried it and actually love it. They get that little bumper crop. Uh, and I, depping, you I, sort of get them all year anyway, but still. I've always been told, and I'm, you know, like, I'm buddies with Coot, and he's like, he hates autos. So when, you know, when I talk to him and he's like, oh, you know, fuck autos. I'm like, all right, well, fuck autos. You know, OG says fuck autos, fuck autos. 
Yeah, that's just that's just 2010, man. You just gotta tell them, man. Hating on autos is so 2010. Yeah, there's new stuff. It's just you know, it's a new age. There's new breeders, and it's you know, the amount of breeders increases the amount of strains uh, exponentially. I want to say, I mean. I know it sounds like we're throwing an auto party here. I do want to rein it back a little bit and say I do grow both, but I don't, at least at this time, don't see myself changing over to just autos. Like my full production, like for the stuff that I'm growing for production, that's not autos. That's photos because I need that predictability. Autos, I feel, are still too unpredictable as far as in the same seed pack, I could get a tall plant, I could get a short plant, I could get somewhere. So, Plus, you have to buy seeds every single time. You can't. Exactly. You know, yeah, you I like to get that same thing again. Yeah, for sure. So there are some drawbacks. I don't want to just. I haven't. Yeah, I agree with you, Spartan, in the sense that I'm not committed to growing only autos. In fact, I grow mostly photos. I grow autos once a year when we do the spring auto flower challenge. Um, but I haven't had the same experience of them being less predictable. Um, oh, dude, I got pictures. I got, yields I, have always I been really purple good. micro dot bigger than my body. I mean, I was holding it up, it was huge, and then I got another one that was you know a third of the size. So, yeah, there's still yeah. when did the purple, the really tall purple micro dot like start flowering? Did it take longer or? Yeah, it did. It did take uh, no, it wasn't, it, it took longer than the ones that are shorter for sure. Uh, yeah. not not among the same strain. I think the I think the the flip is tied to kind of two things. First and foremost is going to be genetics, obviously. But then the second one is stress. If you, like, for example, you're doing topping and things like that. If you're doing a higher stress thing later in its life, you're just ramping up the chance that you're going to stress it enough to go to flower. Because if you stress these plants enough, they'll, they'll make that flip. I've seen that with photo, with photo plants, like, that just, just aren't getting enough light. Not like, you know, they're not getting 12-12, but they will start to flip on like the bottom, the lowers, like on the corner of the yeah. greenhouse. I've had that happen. We, that happens to our, our windowsill plants all the time because we don't give them any supplemental light, but they get a lot of like stray light from the house and their, their photo period is pretty screwed up. Um, so we have a, a photo period plant out there now in a tiny little pot um, and it's sort of, half between flowering and not flowering like the bottom half of the plant is pretty much flowering and the top half isn't matt what's the, what's it called uh when the plants respond to the night cycle but not the day you said it earlier what's that term scoto period okay hey so um is technically scoto period plant it's all scoto technically it's all scoto yeah. period because the thing that they're sensitive to is darkness because the sun is always there, right? It's the night. So in other words, it's the absence of light that causes the physiological change, not the presence of light. If that well, the presence of light, we, yeah, they, they require the dark period. Exactly. Have you guys experienced that root-bound flowering plants? Because I've had two of them now. That um, I was just going to say that, Tao. I've literally got written in chat. It really killed me, dude. The one plant, I lost it because of, well, I can't say because of that, because of my failures, but that plant, yeah, beat me up. I have a high suspicion, and this isn't a shot at Brandon, but I've seen this with many, many people trying to breed autos or just breeding in general. If they keep their plants in solo cups, their males very often throw pollen. 
in veg, even if it's everything else is healthy or whatever. As soon as it gets a little bit root bound, a lot of male varieties and not autoflower varieties, just the general photo periods, if they get that root bound stress, they'll start chucking pollen. And I've seen that pollinate people's veg rooms. And you can actually get seeds out of your bedroom if they're showing stigmas and pistols. So just wanted to throw that out there. I have a uh, lime one, lime one grape soda skunk that's in a one gallon pot. And uh, it's a male. It's the male that I selected out of all the different. Uh, I had, I don't know, maybe 70 males to choose from that I had sex tested in my pheno hunt. And uh, I kept that one because uh, just simply based off of the uh, structure of the plant. Um, and I took a clone of it and it's just, it's flower, it's, a uh, producing pollen now it's flowering, even though it's yeah. outside in full sun. Sometimes they, the, the male plants will produce flowers like on the lowers all the time. I'm taking balls off of a bunch of them. I mean, even when you clone them quick and like then still in veg, it doesn't take long before they pump flowers out. Some of them for sure. I've like not even root bound, you know. Male in the cloner throwing pollen out of the cloner. People were like, hey, fuck it, I'm just going to do my breeding like this. Take a little female and a little male and make a few seeds with their cloner. If it's got enough sexual maturity, that is actually possible, weirdly enough. Tiny micro breeding scale. Yep. I, that, it, that actually happened with the, the couple of cuts that I took of this male plant. They started to flower right away, right when I, when I cut them. I'm curious though, um, do, this might be a little bit of a nebulous question. We might not actually have the answer right now. Maybe nobody does, but when it comes to like breeding, like with cannabis, for example, are there um, like traits well, genes essentially that are associated with certain traits that like come from like the male um of the cannabis plant for example that like we know like that you're that are inherited that are like uh on the y chromosome essentially well then they would be only inherited by the men so yeah if there if there really are those sex dependent traits then there are female sex dependent traits are passed to both offspring um, oftentimes the traits that are connected to the X chromosome, but traits that are on the Y chromosome, which would be male, uh, male specific would only then be passed on to male offspring. I see. And so because we would only be growing the females, it wouldn't really matter. Exactly. We only really care about the, the morphology, right, of the females. As long as the men are capable of producing pollen, it doesn't really matter much else what they do. And they don't need to be big, high-yielding plants either. But the male's X uh, trait. So, like, a male, when it produces pollen, it's throwing a bunch of Xs and a bunch of Ys. And that Y pollen that hits a female will produce a male seed right. with a regular seed. And the X pollen produces a female. Right. So but that male got that X from his mother... So exactly. that is a female sort of specific set of traits anyways, if that makes sense. There's not like a male specific X chromosome. It's yeah, no, 100%, 100% but it's linked to him through his lineage. So the male Yeah, but his sister could have reason. that same trait. So that's not a reason to use males for breeding, right? Because um, any of the offspring or even that original mother plant that gave that X chromosome to the male has it herself. Um, other of her daughters could have that X chromosome, 
So there, it wouldn't mean that there were certain traits that only existed in the male line that then could affect females um, that we were, we were growing. That makes sense. My only thought might be is like, if it's not something on the genetic level, if it's something on like the epigenetic level, like we've kind of discussed, maybe the, um, in the phylosphere, like the microbiome that's going on with the plant, maybe something that's on a certain plant, if it's got a healthier microbiome with the male than like a unhealthy male, even if it's the same DNA. The healthier uh, one yeah. pass. Again, I just think that the female contribution is more significant there to the extent that it's sort of infected with anything. We would expect that those infections to occur during seed development or seed dispersal, um, both of which are sort of after pollination. I mean, the male contribution is just, here's a little bit of genetic material, now work with it. Um, I mean, to the extent that they were growing in the same environment, but I'm just sort of thinking about like, why would we need to use males for breeding kind of question. It, it, that was kind of where I was coming from too. Yeah. That was that was to, the main point. I was to making. prevent having to use silver thiosulfate or any other yeah, mechanism. Yeah, to prevent having to, to back across the, the plant. I agree with that. And in that case, you're opening up, I guess, easier breeding and maybe more broad uh, gene pools. Yeah, and if you really wanted to go the route of, of uh, heterosis and hybrid breeding, you would need a male line um, that, that you worked over, but that would be for sort of a different purpose. It's not because they're male specific. It's just because you'd want to have a set of traits that weren't shared by the female process too. How about because that's the way nature made it? No, I'm just messing with you. Well, nature made plants weird, man. I mean, plants can vegetatively propagate. They can self. They can, um, you know, have, a, you know, offspring with other plants. Um, so it's not like, it's not one simple answer to how to create the next generation of, of plants in the same way that there would be for like animals, for example. To quote CSI Humboldt, if you want messy, go to nature because you'll find plants that are hermaphrodite, that are regular and that are selfing all on the same plant in nature. So it's like, it's, it's messier than ever when you go to nature because when there's without the human cultivation, without our hand saying like, Hey, we want to select for this, that, or whatever trait. Uh, it tends to do its own thing and that's usually what's best to survive and what's best to survive is spreading pollination and, and getting their seed to land on whatever it can to keep their life going it, it's not concerned about am i the most purple or am i the best smelling it's like it just wants to continue its genetic code all right one of the interesting things in sort of this whole breeding with males thing i i don't come across a lot of breeders that really breed their male lines um, that do back cross breeding sort of with them. Well, it's a hell of a lot harder to actually do that, isn't it? Um, yeah, and that, that's going to be one of the, the issues with that. I hadn't really even thought about that before. It's very difficult to, to back cross or to get um, to homozygosity on a male plant like that. So um, that, that makes sense. When you back cross with other plants, um, with dioecious plants, then um, that's different. You can back cross a, a male or a female plant. I think Subgool was a pretty <clears throat> prominent breeder that had males um, that were notable. And same with Bodhi or plant more seeds. Like you'll see certain lines, like the 88 G13 hash plant male that he hit a bunch of different things with. And yeah. people yeah, will be able to say like, oh, I like this about like that, that male. You can certainly have stud males like that. They're, they're um, 
and I would just argue that you're not necessarily going to be able to pick the stud male based on its morphology. Um, it, it's more sort of how those traits combine with, with the things that you're crossing it with. Subcool's a space dude, for example, passed a lot of lemon in like really upper highs. And I know uh, the American one, you've actually worked with the space dude on a few year crosses. So I'd love to hear what you thought about the traits that it passed and breeding with a regular male. Well, I was I just have a cheesequake male, and one thing I could say about males, I, I treat them like females. Like when I'm looking for a male that I want to make seeds with, I'll run out a whole bunch of females and the males, and if the females go harm, I throw all the shit out. If the males pop pistols, I throw it out, and um, that's how I start everything, and I throw out a lot of shit, and I understand now why a lot of these breeders end up, they'll cross the whole entire world with one male because... That one male, they know works. And, and to really know what a male does, you have to grow out tons of its progeny and with different strains attached to it, you know? Yep. So, yeah, it's really hard to find. And once you find that good male, do not let it go. That's another thing I've learned. You know, I had a, I had a really good male that I fucking should have kept. And yeah, so that's what I'll yeah, say. Yeah, with, with this, it's totally trial and error. Um, most of the, the efforts to get male lines and other cultivars, I'm familiar with corn again, um, is just a bunch of trials and error. They have to get through seven or eight generations of back-crossing males. They really have no idea how the male is going to perform or what it could even potentially be crossed with until you get itself that much. Um, and then they have to try. And, and every once in a while, like, like once every other decade, they come up with a new male, new female combination that just produces a, an improved variety of offspring. Um, the, the efforts to do that in cannabis are going to be a lot harder, I'm realizing, um, because it's so much harder and really not possible in the way I'm thinking about it right now to back cross males in the same way. So uh, I'm not sure I have to think about it, maybe even talk to people about how you would get to uh, homozygosity on back or on breeding male cannabis plants. I'm, I'm you, you don't, you don't back cross. You've, you F breed. You just take F1, F2, F3, all the way to F6 or F9. Right, but that's a totally different style of breeding that you're talking about, Jack. I'm talking about going for hybrid breeding where you have parent lines, you always breed with the P1 generation, and you always have seeds that are F1s. So you're um, making your P1 by doing the F6 or F9. So that once you take that F1 and you work it all the way to F6 or F9, you've got yourself a new, unique line that's homozygous, representing more... Well, it, it depends on how you did that That breeding with it right you'd have to cross it with females from the same progeny um i think it would take a lot more generations to get really to homozygosity and plants that are truly homozygotic are usually not very healthy plants no they're runs um, they're absolutely and i've, yeah, seen that. I've got cinderella exactly. 99 f1 and it's beautiful and vigorous and amazing yep. and i've got f4 cinderella 99 and of the five seeds I popped, four out of five of them were total runs. And that's only an F4. Yeah. Well, that's, that's that's going forward. I'm talking about going backwards. The P generation, um, the parent generation of the, the corn cultivars, for example, both the male and the female plant are spindly, scrawny little plants. They only grow about two and a half feet tall. But you cross those two and they create all of the, the giant corn plants that farmers all throughout the middle of this country grow. 
Um, you would never know that by looking at either of the parents because the parents are heavily inbred. Um, they're, they're expressing a number of deleterious recessive alleles that are affecting their growth. Um, yeah, but, but when you but, cross them, the offspring don't don't um, exhibit any of those recessive alleles. That's it, sort of the benefit of hybridization. Is that due to F1, hy F1 hybrid vigor? That is, is that... what F1 hybrid vigor is. Right. Yeah, so so it's these, like yeah. if, you take, if you take two dogs, right? If you've yes. got like a, a German shepherd, that's a very purebred dog and they've bred it a hundred lines into itself and it's super inbred. It's got hip problems. Right. You know, it's got certain problems, right? Then you've got a Labrador retriever. Again, it's got its own issues. It's purebred. It's been bred into itself over and over and over and over. Well, when you cross those two dogs, if they're dissimilar enough, and this might not be, I'm not a dog breeder, so this might not like get rid of the it's hip issues. I think both of them have there. hip issues. But if you cross a German Shepherd and a, a Labrador Retriever, you're going to get then, ideally, if, if the breeding was done properly, a dog that's more vigorous and healthy than either of the parents. Yes, it won't have any out. of those genetic defects that affect both of the parent lines because those genetic defects are likely deleterious recessive traits that got bred into those lines with generations of selective breeding and inbreeding. Um, and when you cross them, you absolutely eliminate the expression of deleterious recessive alleles. You create almost every um, trait is, is heterozygotic, which just allows the dominant things to, to take over. Um, and it produces heterosis. That's, that's what the heterosis really refers yeah, to. Yeah, that's the word I was looking for, heterosis. Yeah. Kyle's got a strain named heterosis. And I, I wanted saw to that. mention in, in corn, they actually... A lot of this was accomplished by making corn go from, I believe it was monoecious to dioecious, or I always fuck up which ones those are, but it has both the male and the female parts on the plant. Yes. And yes. they made the female parts, I believe, sterile, or the male parts sterile. Well, yeah, there are now everything. For a long time, they just detasseled. So Which was just a very like you guys pull bananas off your herms, yeah. um, they would send you know high school students to the cornfields and have them cut off all of the, the corn tassels. So on a corn plant, the, the tassels that come off the top of the plant are the male flowers and the ears of corn that grow at mid stalk are the female flowers. Um, so when the plants start coming ripe, you just go through and you cut off the tassels and that prevents, um, you know, serendipitous pollination or, or random pollination. And then you can go through and um, selectively pollinate the female flowers. So I wanted to get to a question in the chat. This is a little bit off topic, but it's sort of uh, what we were discussing. Spartan Grown answered it a little bit, but Alex T asks, hi all, can you get seeds from an autoflower using STS? Or can you get autoflower seeds from an autoflower using silver thiosulfate? And I guess my answer to them would be, you're going to be reversing a, a feminized plant and depending on how deep bred the autoflower is some of the offspring may be autoflower like with the alf f5 i would imagine maybe all of the self seeds could be autoflower but if it was just like f2 or f3 auto with a photoperiod plant as one of the parents i think you're less likely to have 100 percent autoflower offspring in your selfing or f s1 generation hey i have a question for you guys that i've been kind of pondering while you guys are talking so what about has anybody looked into research on taking a male inducing heavy ethylene on one and taking the same cut of that same male and then pollinating that from basically pulling you're, you're basically turning that male into a female and then back crossing that way so there's a chemical called floral which will uh, consistently reverse 
a male into a female. And I'm not sure the exact process of it. I think you're right. It has to do with the ethylene. But I haven't seen, I saw somebody who tried the project. They had the Florel and they said that they were going to do it. And they were like, I wonder if it's going to produce all male offspring or if it'll produce 50-50 or like all female. Like they didn't know what was going to happen and they ended up like not going through with the project. So I, I've never confirmed what would happen if you reverse a male and then pollinate it. Yeah, it's definitely something I would look into. I, I would assume sort those. of like feminizing that you could get like that 99% female and then like 1% or like less would show as a full male, not even a Hermy. Like it, it uh, the genotype is female, but it expresses itself through its uh, phenotype or what's it called when it's um, expressing in your environment. Um, I think that's phenotype, right? Yeah. yeah so um, the phenotype will show and express completely male, even though it's a, female genotype and i think if you did yeah, that male you take girl, pollination you take, you'd have the same thing yeah if, if a girl's main genetics is female I and mean, you celebrate it i assume you could do the same exact process with a male as long as you can get her him to throw out female uh pistols so that'd be kind of if you want to like sift through males and find something that's fire that'd be a good way to go about it i know people reverse the male with hopes that oh i'll see what the female of this would look like and then i can smell it and the one warning I want to give anyone who uses Florel is Florel is a extremely toxic toxic chemical when inhaled and smoked. So if you do reverse your males to smell them and like stem rub, don't cut them down and smoke them. Uh, some people will just smoke a male like a breeder Steve talked about his best blueberry male that he ever got was so purple and, and just like metallic and covered in resin that he cut off one of the tops, dried it and smoked a bong bowl of a male like pollen sacks and everything. And he said had some flavor and uh, he ended up using that for I think it was like his sweet tooth and Lockhead and a few other early breeding projects that he had so definitely some interesting hey, things that could be shout seen. out to Breeder Steve did you see he had a post on Twitter showing a pistolist bud yeah oh he's been looking he's for got, this since the 90s he's uh, got it now he said he knows five breeders who have attained this pistolist flower that well he's he had it grow. he just hasn't been able to get it in a seed line 50 percent of the uh, seeds in his offspring he can get to be up to half of them he can have be completely sterile females but the other half he can't so he's working on increasing the amount from seed of females that will not accept any pollen so you could grow a field crop even if they get pollinated by hemp crops from miles and miles away it will not produce any seed yeah that's, that's sort of his goal and you know what to back up once when we were talking about um the males and everything in the cannabis industry. I think that's why we have so many lead clones, you know, like, cause um, it's hard to find anything. Like once people find something really good and especially if you, people find good cuttings and herma hermaphrodite uh, strains, then you don't want to mess with the seeds no more. If you got a, a good cut of something that doesn't herm and is killer, you know? I mean, that's like chem 91, OG Kush, uh, Girl Scout cookies, uh, Gorilla Glue number four, uh, we could keep on going on and on. Sour Diesel, there's so many Hermie strains that ended up being some of the most elite and sought-after cuts. So I guess grow out those Herms if you get them, people. <laughs> or maybe not. I know Chef OMJ had some Herms with his uh, dark ghost train haze, and half the offspring were Herms, and half the offspring weren't Herms. So, And I think he said the non-Hermie offspring were actually a super fire, so there might be something to it. I was uh, growing, I've been growing East Coast Sour Diesel for like five years now, and I've never seen it herm, but this one time I had a corner of my tarp that wasn't getting pulled all the way down, and a whole branch of it was uh, male pollen sacs, and so sometimes it's like, 
nothing until it's really something. And I think a lot of people underestimate how often it's human error. Like the tarp didn't get pulled all the way. There was a light leak and that light leak during the dark period caused that branch to hermaphrodite. So yeah, it's in the gen the, the genome or DNA or whatever, but there was a stress factor that often triggered it. So that's definitely important to consider. It should affect the whole plant. I can't remember the study now. I was just talking to my partner, Dr. Photon, about that, though. Even if one leaf gets light contamination, it affects the, the photo period of the... No. Dude, that's I can not, tell you... That's can not tell you, true. I can tell you for sure that this is not, yeah. not the first time that's happened either. I've had, like, pinhole light leaks hit in the tarp, hit, uh, hit certain parts of the bud. And it just makes like a streak of herms right across where that pinhole was. Yeah, I'll have to I'll have to figure out what the what the citation is on that so I can share it with you right. guys. I don't know the the whole study, but um, they were looking at the the way the plants hormones responded to just one leaf getting light. Oh yeah, one leaf because they used to cover branches to to realize what sex it was early on in seasons. They could just put a bag over a branch. Hey, that reminds me, and I actually wrote it down, and I still have forgotten about it. This is a little off topic, but when we're talking with autos, one thing that a lot of people don't tell people, first time auto growers, and this is where you're gonna screw up, look really early on for sex if it's not a feminized plant. I'm seeing sex day 14. And now when I say day, I'm saying from sprouted up and it's first true leaves. I count the first, the formation of first true leaves, I count that as day one. Everybody counts it a little different on autos. That's how I do it. We should, yeah, we should have a conversation about when to start counting. I wish there was more consistency in that across the cannabis community so we could actually know when somebody said day 14 what that really meant, right? I do too. That's why I, I get really specific about it when I say it. That way yeah, I'm the same way. I, I definitely like, I always presume that people are talking about uh like like it like the in totality of the lifespan of the plant but that's I, I never the case so for me day one is when the seed gets wet or when you cut the cutting off of the mother plant that's that's day one um i know a lot of people don't start counting until i'm at like day four or five if you're counting when the first leaves are up or when the cotyledons open or other things like that um and I kind of feel that that's just a way of sort of like cooking the books a little bit, right? By a little, shaving a little some bit. off of your time. Yeah, I, like to do I feel like actually. it's super arbitrary to be like, oh, it's when the, the leaves or when the sprout comes out. You know what I mean? I mean, at a certain point, you don't really know. Well, it's like it survived then, right? Like in, if a baby died in the womb, we don't say, oh, that baby was X days old. You know, it, it died in the womb. So if this it is died getting really sprouts. Deep. So that's getting, pretty dark. Um, I, I like to keep track of things that I can control too. So if I'm going to grow it again, I can control the day that the seed gets wet. I couldn't necessarily control sort of how many days it's going to take to germinate or to rise up above the ground. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying it's wrong to do it any other way. I'm just, I wish there was a little bit more consistency because it becomes, especially during that first week, there's a big difference if you're counting, you know, four days earlier or not. I'd say at the end of the edge, though, one to four day difference makes so much less of a factor than for yeah, me. Yeah, I agree. I By the time you're in day 20 something, it doesn't matter anymore. Like it's flower. those first few seedling stage days. But like for flower, where I'm, I'm looking at like, this is a um, pretty definite time span. Like if you if you count from when you flip versus when you count uh, for if you see pistols, because like some people see pistols in veg and I know they're not starting then. And some people start when they flip the flower. 
And I think the reason I point out that flower, I think is more important to know the exact number of days is it's like, say it's a nine week cultivar. If that's nine weeks from flipping your light cycle versus nine weeks from when it starts yeah, showing, I, I, that's a much bigger difference than like a one or three day difference in veg. I, I agree. And I think that there it's better to count flip days too. Is that what you do, Jack? Always. Yeah. I'm a, yeah. Whenever I flip that light cycle, it's basically the next day or day one, day zero, however you want to look yeah. at it. I thought about this a lot in setting up our journals because we let you count, uh, the journals automatically count your flowering days. And so we give it a choice. We say, you know, have your plants started flowering? And if you say yes, we ask if you want to count um, flip days from 12-12 or pistol days. And then it notes that in your journal is this is like flip day six or if it's pistol day six. And that um, matters a lot for the outdoor growers and for the autoflower growers uh, for like actually knowing when the flower begins because they're not going to be able to say, oh, I flipped unless they're depping. They won't be able to say I flipped on like the 11th. Yeah, um, they'll be able to say, yeah. "Oh, I saw it start flowering." On this oh, exactly. So for those, they have to do it based on flower production, really. I don't know why you guys care. I mean, autos—that's what how I grow an auto. I just fucking let it grow. Who cares what fucking? So day funny, is? man. Just, I've been thinking the same thing the whole time. I said I keep a journal, but like, write down whatever fucking date you want. Who? It only matters to you and your crew as long as you guys yeah. have good communication. Write down whatever date you want until somebody publishes a peer-reviewed journal where they're like, "This is how it must be written." Just do it however you want. Well, no, it can be helpful for some people to know how long it's going mean, say you need to be done before you go on vacation or something and you're wondering when you should flip or if you can have it, if you can wait to let them, you know, get a little bit bigger before you flip or if you should flip now. Sort of having reliable idea about how long that flowering period is going to be, I think is helpful. And I think there's also additional data that can be added into there. So I like to track both. Um, yeah. But as, as a home grower, What's really important to me is how much time I'm putting in on my grow. At the end of the day, I only have so much time. You work a full-time job and then your hobby grow takes a, a bit of your time as well. You have, you have even less time than, than folks who are focused on growing all the time who are doing it professionally like Brandon and, and some of the other folks, right? Um, but so time is really important. And what I like to do is I like to not only um, track the different phases. So I'll say, this is when I germinated the seed. So I know that this plant ran for say 168 days from seed to harvest, right? Um, I look at how many days did I veg that plant, especially if I'm going to run multiple cycles to see if I can find a place where, um, if I veg them for 75 days, and then flower as opposed to vegging them for 90 days and then flowering, what's the yield difference I'm getting? Um, because again, it has to do with how much time I'm putting in. And so I like to measure what was my total yield for the total amount of time I yeah. put in on that plant. So if the plant took 168 days and I yielded three ounces, that gives me a number I can use as a metric to measure my own self and, you know, where I want to be with that plant and see if I can find a way to maximize my yield and my time. Um, because time is really the key. It's not necessarily my, my, my yield per watt or my yield per joule on my light or anything. For me, like I said, it's yield per time. It has to do with how much time I have as a, as a home hobby grower. 
I'm with you there. Time has sound really long to me, Hota, or um, just sort of if you're so sensitive to time, I was kind of shocked that you said like 90 some days for, for vegging a plant. So well, if you include if you include from the time that you actually germinated it, yeah, right. You have two weeks, and again, not talking. We're talking photo period, not autos. I very rarely yeah, yeah. do autos. Um, that first, you, you have you know two weeks really where you don't really have a plant yet um, huh? from germination, right? So you know the first three or four days, you're soaking the seeds and getting them to pop, and then you're putting it into your medium, and then you're getting that first. So it takes a week or two really before you have a plant. So that takes a little bit of time right off the beginning. And then, you know, for me, I like to go at least, and this is me personally with the size of the tents and the size of the plants I like to grow and the pots I like to use. Yeah. I like to go on average at least 75 days from seed and at least 50 to 60 days from clone um, because that's to me what I like. You know, again, that's I've found my my sweet spot on what I like to do with the size of the plants and how many plants I can have. Um, I don't have an unlimited plant count, so I have to keep my counts smaller, which means I grow bigger plants because I can only have so many. Right. I like to grow big plants, too. I just don't I don't mean I usually don't veg them for more than a month. I mean, six weeks sometimes to do the challenges because we have like a designated flip day and I, I would grow fewer plants than to sort of to sort of meet that but i hear you i mean you got to grow what you want it just seemed like a long a long veg period hold on what's what's your plant count so and I how's your headspace three months at a time sometimes less sometimes more it just depends on where it lands on the schedule, how how fast the clones root there's so many factors that go into and it's so hard to predict but i'm with you hota and i do it full time so like my full-time job is farming and mm -hmm. I want to spend as much time with my family as I can. So right. I document things uh, in, in regard to my time as well. But at the same time, I'm, you know, money is, you know, time is money, money is time. So, you know, you want to diversify your inputs and, you know, bring your costs down. Um, and, and that's goes right in line with what you're talking about. Yep. yep. Hello, what's, what's your plant count like and how much headroom do you have in your grow space? So in Massachusetts, we can only have 12 plants total. Um, it's really six per person, but 12 per household. So again, my, fortunately, my wife doesn't like to smoke. And so I get to get her plants. Um, but yeah, so you can only have 12 plants total. So I usually only have three or four plants flowering at a time. I like to run a perpetual rotation. So about every 30 days or so, I'm putting a new plant in. As soon as a plant comes out, I take another plant and put them in. And so what does happen sometimes is some of the plants that are in my veg space, they'll sit there too long because there's not enough room in my flower tent to get them in there. Um, and sometimes I may not have plants that are yet old enough to throw them into the flower tent. So um, it, it's kind of a, everything. It's, a, it's a little bit of a balance there, but I do uh, try to keep to the 12 plant count. Um, that's why I usually don't do a lot of cloning and keep a mother because that tends to cut down on my overall plant count and I like variety. So I tend to pop a couple seeds every 30 days or so and keep that rotation flowing. So what tells you? Yeah, um... I'll say that if you, you're having a problem with the clone count like that, you don't necessarily need a mother. I don't ever keep mothers because of that exact same reason. I just right before I flip my, when I have my, you know, my plants, I'm going to get rid of my perpetual, I'm getting to flip in. Boom, I clone them right then. 
and I'll, you know, I'll take like four of them and with the, with the, but I might only keep one or two just so that I know, just in case I have a problem with an air bubble getting the bottom of it or for some reason doesn't root. But there's a couple of little tricks you can do that. But to the earlier point, when it comes to actual doing farming, like actual growing weed, I don't think a lot of people understand how much time and, and effort really goes into a huge grow until you've actually lived it and done it. I mean, this is farming, man. It's hard work and there is a lot that goes into it. So any tricks Most you can definitely. get to get your timing around it is good. But yeah, no, I mean, when it's time to clone, you better clone. When it's time to transplant, you better transplant or you're going to be paying for it down the road. I mean, trust me, I've lived it. Most definitely. Most definitely. Well said. You know, uh, super important. Yep, I concur. I made that clip a, a, a highlight from one of the old shows. I listened to like 50 episodes to find the clip of Noah because like after he said that on like episode 12 or 13, whenever he said it, it like lit such a fire under my ass because I was being a little bit of a lazy gardener and I'd occasionally like wait a couple extra days to take my clones or do this or that. And my garden was slacking because of it. And as soon as I heard him say that and I started just, okay, this is when it needs to be done. So I'm going to do it. I don't give a fuck if I'm tired. I'm just doing it. And yep. everything started just booming in the garden and doing so much better. So even on a small, tiny scale, like I've got a tiny tent. I can check on my plants twice a day for maybe an hour total. And in that time, like I can either look at them or I can bust out a bunch of work and, and make sure that everything's done that needs to be done. And it definitely uh, pays dividends to do all those little tiny things that add up to making your grow the best it can be. I agree. I think it doesn't matter what you do. Everybody needs efficiencies in, in whatever they're doing, right? Um, you know, we used to, I, I was in the food business for many, many years, and, it, and a lot of it had to do with steps. Um, every step you have to take is, is a loss in time. Um, it's, it was the same thing in the IT industry that I worked in for the last 20 years. Um, every time you had to take your hand off the keyboard, it was a loss of time. Um, so these are, you know, it, when you can do things that help you with your efficiency, uh, regardless of whether you're doing things uh, as, a, as a hobbyist or as a professional, um, optimization of your workflow, optimization of your time spent is always important. Uh, but again, you know, back to what I, you know, from a tracking standpoint, uh, that's kind of, that's how I look at it. That's how I was doing a lot of early on, especially when I was trying to figure out, um, what was the best routine for me? What was the best lighting to use? What was the best soil? What was the best nutrients? And, and trying to come up with some way to compare those uh, was difficult. And so one of the things that I did was looking at, you know, how much time am I spending on everything I'm doing? Uh, how much of a yield am I getting from what I'm using? Um, you know, I did run the same plants for a year and kept using the same clones over and over again so that I would have some consistency between my comparisons there. Uh, but it, it, it's tough. It's tough um, to keep that going. And again, if you have limited space, you can only do so much with that space. Um, I think you mentioned headspace. Headspace. I I'm under seven. I'm about seven feet, I think. So I can't even really get too high. Um, I've had once the plants hit about five ten, they're at my lights, and I have to bend them over. So, so with that, uh, you like said you're talking about long veg times. And um, my big concern is when I first started growing in a, a tent in a closet before I'd grown in big grow rooms or outdoors where I'd veg 60 days, no matter what. So I'd have a yeah. big, healthy plant before I flip. Now, if I go anything past like 45 days, uh, 30 is like the short end of my veg. And that's from when you get the seed wet. Uh, my plants will just explode and take over because I only have a five foot 
tent height. So when you include the the yeah. lighting, lighting probably has a lot to do with how quickly they grow up. You know, and environment. Hundred percent. Media, fertilization, um, root zone conditions. I think have a lot to do with how fast plants veg as well. So like there, there's a lot of differences conditions. when we're talking across different styles of grow. You know, speaking oh. of growth. Uh, you know, I was taking a look at our watching now. We have about 90 people watching, which is pretty high for us, I think. Awesomeness. Hey, hey, hit that yeah, like button. We got three thumbs down. Three, three, oh, three, oh, whole, me three whole thumbs down, huh? I know. Before they count as views. They count as views, too. People so. hate as auto flowers, man. I'm telling you. <laughs> That's what it is. <laughs> well, they there's love a couple them. of people that follow me around that, that always accuse me of being rude. I, I apologize to any of the panelists if you guys find me rude. I, I don't I I've had that relationship with you guys, but there's certain members of our community that uh, are off put by my style of interaction. It hasn't been my experience. Don't worry about it. It's not I don't I don't feel that way. Yeah. No, I think some people are more sensitive. Yeah. To the disagreements and stuff. Snowflakes. No. Hey, before I forget, on the document, on the documentation thing, I'm pretty lazy on all that. So I've learned to take pictures when I put my seeds into the paper towels or get them wet, and I take pictures of my plants when I put them into flower, because all my pictures are dated. So I could go back and see at least those two things I have as data points. And yeah, other than that, I'm pretty lame on the data. I do the same thing. I just want to add for like Brandon's purpose. (laughs) <laughs> where Brandon has so many plants he can't remember which plant he's looking at if you take a picture of the plant tag and then you take like your 10 or 15 shots of that plant and then you go to the next plant and take a picture of that plant tag you'll have like a mini folder within your camera roll and that will allow you to then say like oh all these pictures are of the limerilla and all these pictures are of the green crack across the whatever and um, that's helped me out and I only have a few plants but take yeah, that's smart. Shots, you can mix them up so that'll save time and they're time date stamped Taking a picture of the plant tag is a brilliant idea because I can't tell you how many times I've taken a picture of a plant being like, I'm going to remember what plant this is. And like, you know, four days later when I'm downloading the pictures, I'm like, what the hell, which one was that? Or or 200 pictures later, (laughs) I'm I'm deleting this one because like, and now I'm deleting pictures because I'm like, it's beautiful and everything, but I don't know what it is. It's like has almost, unless it's a special looking really good thing, I'm deleting pictures now. So yeah, I know the feeling. I just wanted to say for anyone who hasn't left a thumbs up or thumbs down, uh, feel free to go ahead. I just saw like 15 more just got added in the last few minutes. So um, we prefer the thumbs up, but hey, if, if you feel so inclined to leave a thumbs down, it also counts towards our little, you know, uh, algorithm. Still so engagement. It's an so your engagement. Thank you're both you of you your engagement. And the thumbs. <laughs> well, really, does the thumbs down count as much as the thumbs up in terms of engagement? I think yeah. it does. Total. It, it just counts as a total thing. And it's That's like the awesome. amount of traffic. So oh, yeah. they're getting more views to our page, whether they want to or not. And it could have been people who loved autos who were like, hey, autos don't suck anymore. We, we love autoflower. So shout out to people that love and hate them. There's room in the community for everybody. So shout out to everyone who's here viewing right now and listening. We appreciate all you. I'm I'm gonna be doing uh, all auto flowers for this next project that I'm working on on this uh, 40 acre farm. Ten of it is gonna be outdoor, and it's I mean, I I don't think I can run anything but auto flowers out here with the uh, climate because I have such a narrow window to be able to flower uh, to have like clear weather because the weather in Oklahoma is very bipolar and sporadic. So I have to be able to finish things real quick. So I think that's the only way I can actually feasibly uh, cultivate outdoors here. 
Do you get hailstorms throughout the whole year, Russ? I mean, uh, Brandon? Yeah, so I guess last year in mid uh, late September, there was a hailstorm, or maybe it was early October, but um, it the weather here is real sporadic. We get thunderstorms all throughout the summer. Um, it rains. It's very humid. So it not only do you have to have an autoflowering variety, but I think you have to have an autoflowering variety that is going to be able to be genetically uh, able to fight off, uh, to withstand the high humidity conditions that are associated with the weather out here. What kind of autoflowers would you recommend, Brandon? Well, I was actually talking to one of the other panel members. Uh, who was it? Nobody or on not. here. He's a uh, autoflower. Full network. duplex. Full, full duplex AFN. And yeah, he's Mandalorian underscore genetics on Instagram. Yeah, he, so I was talking to him about possibly purchasing bulk seed. Um, he said that where he's at, he also has uh, high humidity. And he's um, – so it's one of the options that are available to me when uh, – when I get ready to do this project. Um, but I, I, I honestly don't see any of the varieties that I have being able to really withstand uh, the, the weather conditions. Yeah, well, I actually was talking to him a little bit um, in our chat and direct chat. Um, he's located kind of close to me and I guess he's got someone around here, but I, uh, I want to try and, and put a couple outside just because I kind of feel like you know, I just want to branch out and learn more things. You know, I mean, I'm I, I'm not the greatest indoor grower, but I'm far from the worst. But I want to learn to do some autos outside, just kind of sharpen the tools in my tool shed and uh, you know, learn something new, you know? No, you're very humble because your indoor grow is some of the dankest I've seen on Instagram. And I haven't smoked it yet, but if I ever come up there, I am uh, chomping at the bit to try some of your product because, man, it's, it's frosty as hell. It's got good color. I can tell you keep the environment right. You love your plants and you put a hundred percent in uh, most of your runs and it, it shows. So definitely want to shout you out for that. The other well, thing I, was I appreciate say, that. And uh, yeah, anybody that's in my neck of the woods, that's on the panel, hit me up and I got free buds for you for sure. Same thing with anyone who wants to come to San Diego. Uh, I'd be happy to smoke with you. Doc, I had a question because I've been listening to a lot of the potent ponics uh, podcast with uh, Steve and uh, he's a very notable aquaponic grower. And, and uh, Steve breeder, Steve has also been talking a little bit about aquaponics and, one of the more recent episodes they had like, I think it was episode 200 of Potent Ponics. They had a big panel of a bunch of notable uh, aquaponic growers on. And one of the things they talked about was the explosive growth rate in veg and the thousands of cuts they're able to get off of mother plants. And I know uh, Coco Coir is also extremely fast growing, yeah. but they mentioned like 1.85 to like three inches per day growth in the vegetative state. And I was curious yeah. if you'd seen that level of growth in cocoa or other mediums. Yeah, you can, in late veg, I mean, the best growth, right, is during the stretch. And I've gotten over four inches in a 24-hour period during the stretch. And actually, that was with Blueberry OG, a strain I was just chatting about. Those those plants, Blueberry OG, Colorado Cookies, and um, Night Queen from Dutch Passion um, all grew over four inches a day during the stretch. But those are autoflowers, and they're under 20 hours of light while stretching. Um, you know, if you're getting three inches a day in late veg, that's really good. I wouldn't be sort of floored by that in cocoa or aeroponics. Um, the advantage of both of those methods is the, the oxygen that the roots have access to um, sort of all of the time. So 
they're able to to grow faster <laughs> during veg basically um that, that's a lot yeah. yeah i feel good when i'm getting over an inch so in, in in veg i feel good over an inch and then i'm used to you know like closer to three inches during the stretch is sort of an average cross plants per day per day i feel like that's some that's some like bamboo growth it's crazy man the autos the, in the spring auto flower challenge last year that were getting over four inches a day I mean, I had never seen anything like that. Um, and I, I mean, other than sugarcane, I was <laughs> I was equating it to the, the sugarcane growth because that stuff can get like a foot a day. Um, Amazing. But it, yeah, it was, it, they were nuts. I mean, and that's that's sort of one of the reasons that I push back hard against the, the rumor that autoflowers are always small plants. If you get healthy roots and a sort of a good early development um when you're able to keep conditions right on them through the stretch and give them 20 hours of light they, they just take off i mean they really do take off two biggest yielding plants i ever grew were autos they grew yeah. they, they yielded 40 percent more than i normally yield yep sequence uh shout out to sequence three underscore mi he's yielded over one pound on a plant indoors with an autoflower one of his earlier autoflower runs he had a pound on a single plant so, I mean, definitely some of the best yielding indoor plants I've ever seen. And even yeah. outdoor, I've seen some pretty spectacular yields depending on the uh, environment they're growing. I think it's basically, you know, keeping them healthy, but having enough space for them. Um, so if you're squeezing too many plants into a smaller space, you're, you're going to get less yield off of each one. So it's that sort of ratio. But man, they can really fill up a big footprint. Um, if you train them out, if you top them, if you manifold them, you know, early and really spread the branches out, you can get, you know, 50 colas on a single autoflowering plant um, and fill a tent with it. I mean, absolutely, if that was your goal. I'll try to do that. Maybe next year in the spring autoflower challenge, I'll only grow one. Does anyone remember uh, the numbers that um, he wrote the books, Teaming with Microbes? I must have smoked some uh, funky shit because I'm like spacey today, but... It's uh, Jeff Lowenfels. That's Jeff Lowenfels. That's, that's, that's what everybody hounds me about, man. My so, debate with Jeff Lowenfels. He's been on the show and uh, Bud versus Bud <laughs> yes. as well. But he talked about some numbers. Does anybody know the numbers? He said for an acre, he said they planted on two by two centers with autoflowers and they yielded something like, I want to say like 6,000 pounds or 4,000 pounds, but the photo periods were only averaging like 3,000. So on an acre level, the autoflowers out yielded the photos by a yeah, big amount. Yeah, but did you see his I wonder... Yeah, does he listen? No, I have I questions about all this. He talks about not taking off leaves because you lose biomass, but we're not going for biomass. We're going for buds and trichomes. So I have right. a lot of I have a lot of questions. But you know, where the, what harnesses the energy of the light and creates the the photosynthate that the rest of the plant sort of survives off of. Um, so yeah, it's not really right, about but, biomass. It's about the the collecting solar energy or collecting the the photons right but no but when he discusses how um not taking off the leaves means you have so much biomass at the end of the crop the leaves yeah. are part of that biomass you follow what i'm saying if yeah. you just count the buds only it could be a very different number i i agree i don't think that that's a decent reason to not leave the leaves is just in terms of biome we're not growing for biomass <laughs> So you're on the page. You're on the same page with Jeff. Don't take off a leaf. I'm on this. I'm on the same page about not taking off the leaf, but it has nothing to do with biomass. Right. Right. Yeah. 
So I agree with the no defoliation strategy for sure, but my reasons to not defoliate are that leaves um, receive energy from the light and they store nutrients that the plant can use later on and grow. So even if they aren't receiving energy from the light, they're a source of calcium, for example, that the plant can pull that calcium from those leaves later on if it needs it for other kinds of production. Um, so the only time that I cut leaves off is if they're creating problems with climate. I take I think that was part of the reason he said not to remove anything. Well, well, listen, I think part, so listen, um, cannabis is grown. The female flowers are growing up and they feel a wind on one of their branches. So that they sense that wind. They realize that they could catch some pollen where that branch is. So they're going to pump out more flowers on that branch. So, yeah, there's some truth to that, but they're not is, sort yeah. of as conscious as, as sort of your description makes it seem. Um, well, they do prioritize the, the flowers that are higher on the plant. Um, there's... Like, air yeah, movement will help. It's my, my, it was my, my point was going to be that the more air you get to those buds too will help and help foster their development. I, I'm, I'm telling you, there's, there, there's too much anecdotal evidence that deleafing during flower increases bud production to just say the leaves are a solar factory and we should leave them all on. So I Tal, what we're, we're not addressing is the second part of his statement, though, because he talked about the amount of plants you're putting in a room. You would not put the number of plants in a room if you're growing his method that he is recommending. So like he's saying if you're having to pull leaves off the bottom, it's because you don't have enough airflow or there's too many plants in that same square footage. Well, if you say, fuck it, I've got no plant count. I want to grow however many plants I want. Like look at uh, Spartan Grown's Mitten Canico. They cram plants in there super tight and I'm not criticizing, but they wouldn't be able to have a successful harvest if they didn't de-leaf. The leaves would be on top of each other. There'd be mold. There'd be lack of airflow, but they do pack a ton of plants in. They do right. de-leaf you... and they hit three of light plus on certain stuff like GMO. And it right. looks beautiful. So have... It's all nug meat. There's like almost no leaf to even trim. So it's definitely have... a situation by situation set up. But I think if you're just looking at one plant scientifically under a light on a white paper and you say, this one got the leaves pulled off and this one didn't, and they both received a hundred watts of light. I think the one plant... Uh, versus one plant, you might be able to have a better result with no deleafing, for example. So situations well, this very is a, important. This is a very uh, hot subject among amongst growers. And I will say this: I have done both. I have shoved, you know, four plants under a thousand watt plant light, hit high numbers, and had to defoliate. But I've also done the exact same thing and to the exact same strains and had it to where, for some reason, it stunted a little bit. So I see both sides of the argument, but I do tend to agree with you, Jack. I do think that if you're going to cram plants in there, which I have been known to do and love to do and try and hit those numbers, you're going to have to defoliate in certain selected areas to get freaking light down to the bud sites. But a way to comp to, to comp for, for to stop that and help that is to just make sure that you're cutting the skirts up high. I always tell everybody I like to, because I think that when you cut all that stuff on the bottom, that it promotes stuff on the top. I don't like to take any leaves off that are just on the outside, but stuff that are overlapping, that are covering up bud sites. Sometimes you have to strategically move leaves. That's my opinion. Shave the legs. I like to shave the legs. Yeah. But shave the legs. Lollipopping is what I used but, to call that. But I think uh, defoliation can have different effects depending on what's going on with your plants. If your plants are super healthy, 
you can defoliate super heavy. I mean, you can straight take a lawnmower to your plants. And if you leave one little leaf on there, it's going to be fine. It'll grow back. Um, that said, if it's not doing well, like there's some sort of like uh, pest infestation or pathogen of some sort, and you defoliate just a few big fan leaves, it might stunt its growth for weeks. But during flowering, um, defoliation is important for a couple of reasons. It forces the plant to finish a little faster, I found. And I don't, I don't have any proof for that other than my own eyeballs. And also, the idea is remove all the fan leaves by the time harvest comes around. And when you're running a big farm, you kind of have to, it's like, the, it's like the, the Golden Gate Bridge. When you start painting it, by the time you get to the end of it, you have to start it again because it takes so long. So in my garden, I start thinning at week three and I just keep going over and over again. And it takes like a week every time I do it. So it's sort of this perpetual process that is a, a maintenance strategy for the garden. A lot of commercial operations just call that big leafing. They take off any of the big leaves, especially like the week or two weeks before harvest, just to save time on trimming. Yeah, and, and the, the last procedure. two weeks before harvest to take the lower growth or some of the larger fan leaves is really different. And at that point, um, the larger fan leaves have reduced their photosynthetic potential. We're actually looking at, you know, this is a big project. My partner, Dr. Photon, has a really an excellent article on a lot of the science behind defoliation. So if you guys are interested in reading up on this, uh, he gets into floral morphogenesis, uh, photoreceptors in, in flowers, um, the effect of air and light on leaf photosynthesis and on floral morphogenesis, um, a number of sort of issues about stress and flow and translocation um, and really reviews sort of all of the different possible ways that defoliation could affect the plant, um, the known consequences of defoliation and why a lot of the observed evidence is misinterpreted to suggest that defoliation helped the plant. One of those observed evidence is when a lot of people do their defoliation during the stretch, they, they report the next day or a couple of days later that there's all this new growth on the plant after that defoliation. Um, that's actually a, a stress response for the plant and the plant is forced to um, expend stored energy on rapidly regrowing leaf surface area um, because it just got injured. Um, it's not a sign that what you did in any way really helped the plant. In fact, it's causing the plant to draw down resources that could have been used for floral, for flower production. Um, but it often sends the signal and growers interpret that certain sudden blossoming of growth on their plant to be that what they did was helpful. Um, so yeah, I'm working over this as soon as I get a little bit sort of better situated with my light project that I'm in the middle of um, the defoliation article and making that into a real article for the website is, is, a, is one of my main goals. But the article he has up there right now gets into all of that stuff. And if you guys are really interested in sort of understanding the plant science behind these defoliation practices, I recommend uh, looking that over. Yes, I definitely am going to give it a read, but I'll I wanted say, to make a comment about the defoliation. And, and one thing that I think people commonly like say, hey, look, my plant is praying so hard. Like I pulled off these leaves and now the next day it's praying and a lot of the leaves are lifted up and facing towards the light. Yeah. Not saying that that's a sign of bad health or good health, but I wanted to say my theory on why that happens is 
if you look at like a fire hose or a garden hose and it's just got its regular flow rate, right? You know, water's pouring out. That's sort of like your plant is able to take up so much water from the, uh, the root zone, in my opinion. And then when you start taking off leaves, uh, the amount of water and things that are taken up and, and moving throughout the plant, I think you've got the same exact root zone and the same root size and pot, but now you've got a lot less plant material up top. So all that water and everything that's being pushed up to the top is now focused on what is remaining. So people often say, oh, look, it takes all that energy and redirects it. Yeah, I think technically it is. I don't know that that guarantees an increase in yield, but it does make the plants look really happy the next few days. So I hear a lot of people talking about that, like praying and the better airflow and things like that also. Um, your plants can definitely look a lot better after even just a few days of uh, defoliation, but I don't necessarily think that means it's the perfect thing to do always. I just um, did it one way, did it the other way, and go with the way that works the best for me. And I stripped the shit out of the plant. But it's, it's, it's that caveat. This is the one thing that nobody brings up in this conversation enough. Is it depends on how you're growing. Um, in, in a synthetic situation, I am for the leaf strip because like what Dr. Um, Dr. Coco was saying was you, you, you're losing stored nutrients when you do, for sure. That's the, no debate there. Uh, but in a, you know, when you're feeding in an ionic form and the plant gets that food every single day, it, it doesn't matter. It gets that right back, the next watering. You know. Somebody brought that up. Can I jump on that for a second, not to cut you off, Spartan? Sure, go ahead. Uh, if you leave those lower leaves on your plant, you will notice that they develop signs of calcium deficiency. Have you ever noticed that on leaves that you leave lower on the plant if you let them? I don't. I, I've not, I don't on, in either situation. You don't. I always. Um, I, no, I always. What I'm trying to say is I, I don't notice it because I've always had. They're not there. I always strip. I never leave right, stuff. Right, right, right. So if you do leave the lower leaves, and maybe other people have had this experience, um, they demonstrate signs of nutrient deficiency. And that's because the plant is pulling them and using them for other places. So especially some of the, the uh, micronutrients that are harder for the plant to uptake. Um, and if you're growing in cocoa, calcium is the big one. Um, and when you get later into flower, when you start using a higher PK blend, um, that can adversely affect the uptake of calcium. And so plants will yeah, pull that, I mean, you don't have to out of their lower leaves all of the time. And the, the leaves that you are able to leave on there um, shrivel up and, and look like horrible deficiencies. And that's the plant reallocating that energy. So even though we're providing the calcium in, in the nutrient solution, it's just easier for the plant in certain situations to take it from its older leaves than it is to uptake it from the, from the water. Yeah, and that's why I'd argue is another benefit for removing older leaves. I don't think, I think you lose efficiency in the leaves. I think the older leaves are usually shaded more anyway. Um, they're lower in the canopy. They start and, to die off naturally. I mean, in my so, setup, many of them just die. Yeah, at some point you're losing efficiency and it's more efficient to remove that leaf than it is to leave it there. I've, I've seen it with yeah. my own eyes, just stripping them off, man. On the whole defoliation, I would say it's strain specific too. Some strains, uh, are better handling it than others for sure. I don't do the, the, the crazy default. I mean, when I say defoliate, I don't, I don't mean take every single leaf off. I, I don't do that. I, I've done it. Big, I'm talking about big fan leaves. I'm talking about taking fan leaves off. Even like the schwazing though, like I thought my yield might get hurt worse than it did. Um, it oh, definitely went down, but I, I took every big leaf off or every leaf, I should say almost every single leaf, except for like the tiny ones right on the node at day 21 and day 42, they call it the mango tech. Uh, Miami mango does tech. pretty heavy strip. 
and Absolutely. I still got a, a decent yield and it was the best looking bud structure I've ever had on any of my harvests. And it was only one to two ounces less than my average yields. So it was sort of like a... To get the benefit of that technique, you have to not lollipop at all because when you do it like that, the, you have the maximum light penetration. So don't lollipop and you get a little extra yield off the bottom. Your bottom buds get a little better and you're actually able to keep those. And you get Great point. I didn't, if you look at my Sour 76 run, it's nug meat from top to bottom. It looks like little mini baseball bats of just like bam, 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 like little popcorn or golf balls, like nugging out all the way down. Yeah. No, nug meat. I've tried. Sounds like a good name. Yeah. I've tried that tech and I did, I did see the advantage of it, but for me, the disadvantage of that was way too much manual labor. I mean, to, to keep up on that for the switch after, you know, I work with a plant commercially. So that's what I do in my day job, come home and have to do that. No, not this guy's not going to do that. So for me, my situation, I'm not going to do that just because the man hours aren't, I'm not willing to put that many man hours into the plants. And, and I found other ways to grow to get similar or better results. So I'm always trying to go for the techniques in the garden. that will keep me in the garden. Like I don't want it to be a chore to be in the garden. So I try to make stuff that's easier on me, but it's all, all the choices I, I pick are for quality, obviously. So in the home grow, so I want it to be good quality, but I also want it to be not a pain in my ass to have to do it. And that was a pain in the ass to do. <laughs> it also sort of depends if you make hash or not. Right. So like if you're a hash maker, you're not going to want to pull off all of your leaves because they're collecting resin for you and you're going to make hash at the end. And I was going to say, I have in there. I have so many buddies that ask me for my smalls that at this point, like I can just keep lowers on or not just depends on if I get to it. And if I don't, all right, there's a bunch of hash for next season. I guess there was a real time within the last three to five years of the California market where there were Northern California growers who were getting more money for their trim or they were actually quicker able to sell their trim than they were their flour. So they were taking flour and grinding it up or just giving it to people as quote trim for hash makers because the hash price from good clean cultivators was so high that they weren't able to sell their flour, but they were able to sell their trim. So they were just selling it all as trim for a little while. So it shows you if that marketplace is strong. I uh, missed that definitely... boat, man. I've never sold a pound of trim for more than like 50 or a hundred bucks. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're doing a complete 180 right now. Um, the, the, the market for uh, super, super elite chronic weed right now is going up. I've been saying it for a while. It's going to keep going up. I just don't think people understand how hard it is to actually grow stuff like Brandon's growing, stuff like other people that are, grow really good weed. I mean, even my weed, really high-end elite weed that's lower-yielding strains, the work that goes into it, and anything can go wrong to have successful, actual, really good buds. That's what it's all about, man. It's like, this reminds me a little bit about what they it. say about stock markets. Uh, they, don't, they don't predict how the economy will go. They, they're only what we speculate about how the economy will go. And in a lot of ways, what you're saying is kind of like that, too. We'll see how things go. But well, I hope it goes up, 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 up. <laughs> actually, we can pull, you can pull from other markets that are similar. Look at um, anything else that's taxed similarly, like, you know, alcohol, cigarettes. In times of economic, yeah, it's always, it's always stable. It doesn't matter if the economy's up, the economy's down. That is always up. I mean, people are always going to get their alcohol. People are always going to get, because they're economically depressed. And that's their escape. And, you know, cannabis is just one more, but it's a healthier option. So even in these times, I mean, right now, I can speak for the Michigan market right now. 
Um, and I can speak for both markets and I can say nobody's even people just want weed at this point. That's how dry that it's getting right now. So, I mean, with everybody sitting at home and they have nothing to do, they're spending their dollars on just getting through, you know, the best they know how. And cannabis is really good for that. So even I, good I'm not worried, man. I think it's recession proof. I think it's depression proof. I mean, anything short of a revolution or something insanely crazy going on, I feel pretty confident and secure in the It'll be worth more then if that happens as far as yeah, yeah. yeah somebody uh, I don't remember who where I said it or so, somebody in chat on Instagram or a DM and said something to me about you know they'd heard some rioting going on up here in Michigan and I said I'm not worried man if they come walking down my street I'll be sitting on the front porch with a big jar of weed and be like, come on guys bring that bring your torches over here let's fucking burn this down and then everybody will just leave all fucking happy feeling and We'll be good. That took a hard right turn, dude. I thought you were gonna say you're sit, you're gonna be sitting on your porch with a fucking shotgun or something. <laughs> I want to correct right something thought. that I said just for the uh, the audio only listeners. Um, we brought up in chat, and I absolutely misspoke on calcium. Calcium is not a mobile nutrient. It's really the magnesium that becomes the mobile nutrient that's more important to translocate in the plant. Um, the the symptoms of that always to me at least look like calcium deficiency the way the leaves shrivel up um so but it's not actually the calcium that's being reallocated it's magnesium and there are other mobile nutrients but the one that's most important to us especially in coca would be the magnesium so next time that i think my plants have a deficiency i should just say that the plant had different plans and decided to reallocate those nutrients elsewhere <laughs> well, there are other forms of deficient. There are other causes of deficiencies. But it, it, you know, one of the important things to think about with that, everybody always thinks if you have a deficiency, that's because you're underdosing the nutrient. Um, and I actually think an underdose is is not probably the most common reason to have nutrient deficiencies. There's lots of, of various reasons that that could crop up. It could be an overdose of another. Uh, yeah, it could be an overdose. It could be a pH issue. It, it could, could be temperature. It could be yeah. you know, uh, the amount of light. Hey, Doc. Yeah, what's up? Is that, why, is that why they always put Cal and Mag together? Because it's probably, they look the same so much that either one's going to fix it. So they just put them together. What's the story? No, the deficiencies actually look differently. Um, it, it's really the reason that they're put together. They, they're used in similar ways, but it has more to do with the solubility that they don't um, affect the solubility of each other. So they're able to stay in solution like that. And um, yeah, it's a common sort of plants that, that need a boost of calcium also often benefit from a boost of magnesium and vice versa. Right, and I have another quick question. I've seen contradicting um, information on uh, the ratio of uh, magnesium to calcium. One article or whatever source said Essentially, it doesn't matter. The plant will take what it needs. And then another one says, if they're off by too much, it could really screw shit up. What do you know about that? Um, well, first of all, calcium and magnesium, one of the reasons that we're so sensitive to calcium and magnesium or that I am is because they have a peculiar relationship with uh, cocoa core. And they both have a fairly similar relationship like that. Both calcium and magnesium will satisfy the, the buffer on the core. Um, as far as um, plant uptake, I believe they, they both are uptaken by the plant when they're available. Um, and I don't think that, that you run into, I, I don't think the ratio is that sensitive. I could look up and see what, what ratio we're running. I have that all in a spreadsheet. 
Um, but it very, I mean, yeah, I don't think it's as, as important as um, sort of meeting the minimum dose, at least not in uh, cocoa. Um, one of the issues with cocoa is a lot of the, the calcium and magnesium that we provide doesn't actually go to the plant. It goes to the cation exchange sites on the cocoa, which then release other nutrients, um, often uh, potassium. So that affects the, the overall blend. Um, you never know exactly how much that's going to happen. So if the ratio of calcium to magnesium was really important for the plant, uh, it wouldn't be very possible to grow as easily as we do in cocoa because that ratio is always going to be changing in the root zone anyways. Okay. All right. I just wanted to give uh, Spartan Grown an opportunity to give his sign off because we've only got about five minutes left here and he's going to have to jump <clears throat> over to Michigan Bros Grow Show. But I wanted to comment on one thing Spartan said before you give your sign off about uh, people that are using it at home and often depressed. There's also people that are, I would say, like thriving. There's like the tech people in San Francisco that are buying up all the Blue Dream and, and people that are doing well, uh, even in non-recession times. And so I, I agree with you 100%. Like whether it's recession or whether we're thriving, people are going to be using cannabis as their sort of, whether it's an escape or a celebration at the end of the day, it's uh, always, I think, going to have a place. And the good stuff, the quality will keep going up. But I think the overall pound price will go down as we get more commercial producers like making Bud Light type style cannabis but with that said spartan grown uh i know you've only got a few minutes left here before you get on michigan bro grow show so go ahead yeah thanks i wanted to just put my two cents in what Todd was talking about there i think they put them together because of the ratio it's it's pretty important because they're antagonists with each other if you get way too much magnesium you could lock out calcium and vice versa so i think that's kind of they want to keep it in a okay ratio with each other so they're not locking each other out because if you have a calcium deficiency the last thing you want to do is lock out calcium with magnesium with too much magnesium um, that's essentially so, what i've heard is that you don't want to add one without the other when you, you those two things have to be in in balance i don't know if that's equilibrium but it's with balance. the molders chart right is the the thing molders right. chart yeah that's what purple og was was saying in chat too yeah so yeah i just i'll just uh make this short uh shout out to michigan bros grow show i'm headed there we have uh pedro from pedro's grow room coming on so i'm excited for that because you know we look alike so that's awesome. your twin yeah Absolutely. <laughs> so anyways uh growers love you guys uh and everybody in the chat it was awesome time and uh we'll see you guys next week thanks for joining us martin peace now uh i always usually throw it off to the panel if anybody has anything that they'd like to discuss in the final few minutes before we do our shout outs if you had anything from the earlier discussion maybe that you didn't get to say uh now would be the time to throw that out there well i did um we were talking about floromorphogenesis which is just the you know development of flowers and uh i just wanted to shout out a research report that came out that showed that some bumblebees will actually pierce leaves and or, and I shared this on my Instagram and that causes uh, at least the plants that they were looking at in the study to flower more quickly and they do it because bumblebees uh, eat pollen right so they do it if there's not a whole lot of pollen around they kind of force the plants to flower to produce pollen so that they can feed which is kind of amazing to consider um, I don't know how like universal this uh um reaction to uh damage is but that's kind of an interesting thing to consider 
It, it, I, I saw that article, Matt. I actually talked about that with Jordan on a recent Growcast that we did. I think that that shows that, I mean, what I took from that study was a, a little bit of a window into how much we still need to, to learn about some of these things. And it's a good call for humility because nobody really um, anticipated that, that fluoromorphogenesis response from the bee bites. We'll say I'm going to be doing some uh, casual experimentation because my barber who just came by today for unrelated reasons uh, and I, I taught him how to grow cannabis and he's a beekeeper as his other job and so he's got bees at his house and around uh, San Diego and we're going to do some outdoor cannabis and, and try and keep the uh, males separated or even just maybe have like one male and see how much pollen the bees will bring over to the females and, and try and see if the bees will make seeds on their own and uh, other things and like seeing if maybe they'll cause damage to the plant and make it flower sooner because that was a really cool research report Matt Matthew well importantly these were bumblebees not honeybees oh interesting so then there's a, I guess there's we wouldn't have the uh... sorry uh there's a beekeeper I think he's from France I'm, I'm not even sure he speaks English but he produces oh yeah I know the infused honey that's Bogus. Yeah, it know, sells for a for shit ton a though. So hey, I'm gonna get in on that hype, and if 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 it's anything even halfway decent, I'll uh, try and get it out to the community because I think it'd be kind of cool to try and make cannabis infused honey naturally. I, I want it's virgin. like a fantasy. I just want to believe it's real. Oh yeah, the guy says the bees collect the resin glands. Though he's not saying they're collecting pollen. He says he trained his bees to collect the resin glands. Now come on now. To feed on the sugars of the cannabis flower somehow or another. I don't know. It'll be a good topic for another time. I didn't mean to. Uh, I'm glad that we're all talking about bug stuff finally. I uh, <laughs> <laughs> that I can talk more about. I got to get out of here too, so I'll go ahead and do my sign off now, if that's all right. Absolutely. Thank you very, very much for having me. It's a pleasure as always. Great talking to all of you. Always awesome to get into this crowd and have a chat with everybody. Uh, I'm at Hota Herb, J-O-T-A-H-E-R-B on Instagram, and you can catch me there all the time. Thanks, everybody. Have a great night. Thank you. Thank love. you for joining us, Hota. It's always a pleasure to have you. And uh, next up, I think Matthew Gates, you can give your sign off. Yeah, okay. So um, I'm Matthew Gates. I am an IPM specialist, and you can find the content that I make about pests and that sort of a thing on my youtube channel zenthanol also on my instagram uh, at sync angel and um i think i'll be talking on the future cannabis project pretty soon so we'll be talking about ipm me with um the president of the cannabis horticultural association as well so stay tuned for that and i look forward to the next session next podcast next week thanks guys Thank you. And it looks like we've got Noah raising his hand. So I think we'll uh, let you do your sign off next. Yeah, I just want to say I uh, had a great time today. Uh, take it easy, St. Angel, Angel there. And uh, yeah, I'm Noah the Grow with two E's, N-O-A-H-T-H-E-G-R-O-W-A on Instagram. I'm an indoor grower who's been doing this for about 10 years. I have fun. And uh, if anybody's got any questions, you're more than welcome to stop by. Thanks again, everybody. Had a great time. Everybody here, have a good night. I'm out. Thank you, Noah. That's Noah, T-H-E-E, Groa, with an A at the end. And I wanted to reference uh, Matthew Sink Angel's Instagram because this is actually something I wanted to bring up. Just uh, 
because we talked about it a few episodes ago when Miss Nudie Grows was on talking about LPs with thrips. And Matthew actually posted an article where he uh, shared some information about thrips and some of the damage that they can cause on cannabis. And Miss Nudie said that LPs were using them to potentially have stress-induced um, trichome increases and, and potency increases. But this study actually found thrips decrease not only the yield of the flower, but also the cannabinoids and terpenes as well. So those Canadian LPs don't know what they're doing. They're probably just having a hard time fighting LPs. And <laughs> uh, yeah, not the most uh, strategical strategy to implement in your grow for anybody who may have heard if only that. only were that easy. Past, <laughs> in the past episodes when we talked about it. So next up, I'll hand it over to Dr. MJ. Hey guys, that was an interesting, lively show today. Um, I thank all the rest of the panelists uh, and the chatters who, uh, you, even when they try to hold me in line, I appreciate the, the community and the feedback and all of that. Um, I'm going to be doing, like I said at the top, I'm going to start doing my first light test tomorrow. I got everything set up. I got my whole rig. I got my testing surface. I got my mylar walls and I've got um, a little SP-150 from Mars. I've got their new still unreleased SP-3000 and a spider farmer SF2000 that I'm going to test tomorrow. And I'll be loading uh, video reports of that and loading all that stuff to our calculator and test report pages on our site. Um, and also, like I talked about at the top, I, uh, we are starting to gear up for our next grow challenge. And we've got a whole committee in charge of putting this challenge together. We're going to create um, training groups. So we're going to have a group of uh, people doing topping, people not topping, people specifically doing main lines and manifolds and other things like that. Um, so I think it's going to be a fun challenge. It starts on August 15th. So everybody start getting your grow calendars lined up so you can grow together on August 15th. Awesome. Really looking forward to all of that, Dr. MJ, especially the uh, lighting testing stuff and all the inform information you're putting out with that. I always liked uh, Shane at Migros testing. And I think it's really cool to have some of that done on American soil by a panel member here and yeah, yeah. sort of giving us some more authority on the lighting aspect than maybe we already have. And I think it's important for people to understand and be able to comprehend those testing uh, setups and, and things like that and why it's important and what it tells you about the light and coverage area. So Yeah, cool. So I, yeah, it's important to point out, I am doing this all in collaboration with Shane from Migro Lighting. Um, we're following the same protocol and I'm going to be trying to produce a you know, a similar style of videos as well that go along with these, but we're collaborating. I'm arranging or trying to at least arrange fixtures for him to test and he's arranging fixtures that I can test. Um, and so we're trying to build out, you know, a big library that um, will be third-party tested data on these grow lights. So you'll have sort of a, a better source of information to, than just the, the marketing literature. Thank you so much for that. And next up, Aaron, the grower. I'll unmute this time. Uh, so, oh, I want to say that, yeah, I too am going to be on uh, Future Cannabis Project. Uh, Peter emailed me uh, to do some work with them as well. So it'll be cool. It's cool that Matthew and I are kind of like parallels in that uh, path. And uh, But I'm going to be interviewing uh, Sustainable Plant Solutions, a couple of buddies of mine that I've worked with on soil test projects, feedback analysis, and all that. And they're really smart guys. I think that's going to be Tuesday morning. I'll, uh, I'll post more about it on my Instagram. I am ATG Acres, only on Instagram. It's the only place you're going to find me. Oh, YouTube here and there. But uh, And yeah, 
thanks for having me guys. You guys are all a blast to hang out with. And I'm always, uh, uh, it's always a pleasure. Well, we're happy to have you. I love having multiple perspectives. I think part of the panel show that's so powerful is having people from different locations and, and different cultivation techniques and experience levels. So thank you so much for joining us and for sharing uh, this weekend as well as the past weeks. I look forward to seeing you on the Future Cannabis Project as well as uh, Matthew later on. So next up, we have the American one. Hey, Jack, thanks. Shout out to Shane again. And uh, the panel was great tonight. Everything was great, interesting. Uh, everyone in chat, shout out. And uh, yeah, you can find me on um, IG. I'm the American one with a Keens. Just look for the uh, the little guy with the hat, the American American top hat. And uh, that's about it. It was great. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. Always a pleasure. And uh, I think someday I'll have to uh, maybe try and crack some of your genetics, Tao, because everybody who seems to grow them has been loving them and they've got a little bit of uh, subcool genetics in there, which I'm a big fan of. So shout out to that. Yeah, I got you. For sure, for sure. And next up, we've got Brandon Rust. Hey, thanks for having me. Always a pleasure to come on and chat with the rest of the panel member. And um, if uh, you guys aren't familiar with my account on instagram it's rust.brandon um and yeah you can find links to my company bokashi earthwork and for the medical cannabis facility that i that i uh, am the director of um and that's in my bio i got a lot of cool stuff uh happening you can check out all the flowers that i've been posting and stuff fun stuff I've really been enjoying uh, your page for whatever reason. The Instagram algorithm has been putting you up at the top. So whenever I load, I am often seeing your bud shots. So shout out to you and the commercial facility over there. The buds are looking beautiful and you're doing a great job. And uh, thank you for joining us. I appreciated your input there on the auto flower breeding stuff and uh, just your general feedback. So thanks again for joining us, Brandon. Dude, I think the algorithm favors fireweed. I, you, you've been killing it, Brandon. That like that limerilla is just just absolute. And purple tapes, all that shit is fire, dude. Thanks. Yeah, it's. Uh, I can't wait to. Uh, it's all hanging up right now. So some of my favorite I ever had. Some of your stuff, dude. Yeah, Thanks. Brandon is definitely. Uh, you deserve the, all the respect that you've been given because uh, the quality is definitely there and it shows both in the photos but also in real life when you smell it and get to experience it for yourself so i wish i could experience in that brandon it looks fucking awesome yeah i'm really it's really exciting too because there is a really high quality dispensary out here called integrity um integrity rx and uh they literally only carry like the best farmers in in the state like their products so it's it's cool i like working with them i know where i'm going to visit when i visit oklahoma shout out to integrity rx shout out to south park uh integrity weed <laughs> yeah i'll see you guys all right peace out brandon and last but definitely not least we have kyle from predicative breeding thanks for joining us hey Kind of spot off topic you guys were all talking earlier. So I'm, I was kind of doing pollen preservation, and I spoke to an, an old-time bee farmer who's doing it for like 40 years. Um, there's a bunch of facts that he's telling about, but uh, the flavors and taste of honey are completely dictated on where the bees are collecting their pollen from. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And if anybody's also dealing with allergies, uh, there were multiple people coming in there, adults, adults with children, that were buying sacks of pollen. And I was so confused why I kept 
you know, all these clients were or his customers were coming and buying this. And apparently, if you put a spoonful of that in your cereal daily, uh, eventually uh, your allergies. You cut off at your allergies, but I agree. Uh, bee pollen, especially That's local uh, bee pollen, is a great way to uh, prevent um, dealing with local allergies for many people who don't know that honey or even bee pollen uh, can help yeah. allergies tremendously. Yeah, I didn't even, uh, thought that was pretty interesting. But um, yeah, thanks for having me, Jack. I appreciate it. Um, if everybody wants to look at some of the stuff I'm working with, uh, you can find me at Predicated Breeding on Instagram, Twitter. Um, I mainly deal with plants that don't hermaphrodite since it's a huge problem in the feminized seed industry. And uh, yeah, I'll be having some new work coming out soon. I got my, my I moved, so I was kind of like not growing for a little bit, but I'm, I'm back, uh, back to what I was doing and I should have some new stuff coming out. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you uh, on the show tonight, Jack. Thanks for everyone that was here and I uh, hope you guys all have a good weekend. We hope you have a great weekend as, as well, Kyle. And you can find Kyle at pbreeding.com as well as pred, uh, Predicative Breeding on Instagram and most of the other social media platforms. We always appreciate you joining us, Kyle. And uh, sorry for anybody who couldn't hear uh, some of the stuff that he was saying tonight. The connection issues are sometimes uh, out of our hands. But last, I am the uh, host for this week. You can find me at Jack Greenstock on Instagram as well as Cannabuzz. I'm also Jack underscore Greenstock on Twitter, and I host the podcast Greenstock Talks, which has about three or four episodes out now that you can go and listen to. I have more planned in the future. I want to give a big thank you and shout out to Shane of the Cheap Home Grow. He's the one who initially launched this podcast for all of us uh, over 60 weeks ago so that we can continue to come together and share growing information to help people try and grow affordably and uh, the best quality at home. So shout out to Shane. And shout out to the Cheap Home Grow because he's got a back catalog of tons of episodes with us and with many, many other cannabis community members. So much love to the Cheap Home Grow. Thank you to everybody who tuned in live. And thank you to everyone who listens to the podcast afterwards. This is Jack Greenstock signing out. Grow love, everyone.